0: Hello and welcome to The Long View, a podcast that takes a closer look at the games people play. The Long View is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Go and check out all that the Dice Tower has to offer at Dicetower.com. Whether it's the latest review with Tom and Eric and the rest of the gang, or another podcast in the Dice Tower Network, there's surely something for everyone. That's Dicetower.com. The Long View is also proudly sponsored by Gamesurplus.com. Go and check out all that Gamesurplus.com has to offer you. Uh, Namely, fantastic customer service, a wonderful selection of uh, hard-to-find board games and popular favorites, and uh, a dedication to customer service that's truly second to none. If you're looking for a game and you can't find it anywhere else, drop Velma a line over at games at gamesurplus.com and see if she can track it down for you. She has uh, imports coming in from Germany all the time. Uh, Last week, uh, I know she got in Mysterium, a very hard-to-find game and one that everybody's been looking for. Um, She's always got something new on the horizon so go check out gamesurplus.com and if you do order from them please be sure to tell them the long view sent you. I also like to send a special shout out to my local game store. It's the Gamers Edge in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. It's conveniently located off of Interstate 80, uh, right here in the northeastern region of PA. If you are looking for a great selection of games and a friendly staff and a wonderful place to gather and meet and play games, then go no farther than the Gamers Edge on Main Street in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. I also want to uh, briefly mention that uh, I am still currently running my supporter drive. Um, This is uh, a drive that I'm running right now uh, trying to get a little bit uh, updated software and uh, also uh, trying to raise a little bit of money to try to go to Gen Con this year and check out all that that has to offer. Uh, I went last year and, and it really felt it gave me a insight into the industry and to what was going to be coming in the, in the next year and gave me a little bit of perspective on w- what had happened before, which is really what The Long View is all about. So I'm um, looking to try and uh, um, go to that again this year and uh, was you know thinking, well, if I'm going to run a supporter drive, why not try to uh, offer something fun as well? So uh, for every dollar that you donate to the show uh, through our webpage at uh, thelongviewpodcast.com, Um, there's a donate button there for PayPal. Um, For every dollar that you donate, you're going to be entered uh, once uh, into the raffle for winning a brand new copy of Mysterium, the game we were just talking about. So, uh, if you, you know, donate just a, as little as a dollar, I will be greatly appreciative and your name is entered into the drawing. If you donate $5, then your name's going to be entered in five times uh, for the drawing. So uh, what's going to happen is I'm going to kind of gather those uh, generous donations. Some of them have already come in. And thank you so much uh, to those of you who support the show uh, monetarily. Those of you who support the show just uh, through reviews and through comments and uh, things of that nature, whether it's on iTunes or here on BoardGameGeek, uh, um, that's a wonderful way to support the show as well, and I'm grateful for all kinds of support, so uh, don't feel that this is something that uh, you know you have to do if you're listening to the show, but if you'd like to, that would be wonderful. Uh, I'm going to be running this drive for probably uh, the two months, so you're only going to have to hear this spiel uh, four times. So uh, We've already kind of gone through uh, our first cycle. This is the second cycle, so uh, after that two-month period, I'm going to uh, announce the winner. Uh, I'm going to just kind of put together a nice little Excel spreadsheet. Sheet and uh, put everybody's name in the number of times per their donation, and uh, then just go to random.org and uh, say, Hey, you know, give me a random number between uh, uh, zero and you know 136 or whatever it happens to be, and uh, you know that that will tell me who my winner is. So, uh, really, looking forward, um, to this and, uh, really looking forward to this, uh, and really looking forward to your gracious help with uh, trying to get a newer version of GarageBand for uh, the computer that. Uh, I was able to buy in large part to last year's drive um, you know which is supporting the show uh, once again so I really appreciate that. So um, you know if you have a mind to please go to the website uh, the longviewpodcast.com and uh, check it out and uh, see what we have there on the webpage and if you can uh, make a donation I would greatly appreciate it. So uh, that's the little blurb for uh, my supporter drive for this year. Thanks for listening. My name is Jeff Gamble. I'm the host of The Long View, and today I am very pleased to be joined by none other than Steve Oxenic, uh, Stormseeker 75, as he's been known for years and years uh, in the board game geek community. Um, I'm fortunate enough to call Steve a friend. Uh, He and I uh, knew each other uh, when he was living in New Jersey, and now he's joining us today all the way from uh, icy Michigan. So uh, good morning, Steve, and uh, thanks for agreeing to be on the show.
1: Good morning, my friend. Pleasure to be here talking to you. Having this is the first time I've ever excuse me, the first time I've heard you do this, and uh, I'll definitely say you have a face for radio. So there you go.
0: <laughs> thanks, thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah, the, uh, the the gentleman I just spoke to in the last episode about Terra Mystica, uh, he likened me to like someone on NPR, and I'm like, oh great, I'm like the NPR <laughs> ladies from Delicious Dish. <laughs> <laughs> Good times. Oh, that's awesome. Good times. <laughs> anyway, well, thank you. Well, it's a pleasure to get to talk to you, Steve. And and uh, your name kind of uh, sprung to mind. Um, we had talked about this actually before you moved from Jersey, um, because both of us have a, a love of the game of biblios, uh, or for those of us who are old school enough, scripts and scribes. Um, This is a game uh, designed by uh, Steve Finn that was one of the first games that I actually kind of played. I'd say it was probably like the 10th or 13th game that I ever really owned and played, and I remember being completely blown away by this game, and then finding that you were an enormous fan of it, too, and that you had uh, actually, you know, corresponded with uh, a Dr. Finn and, you know, talked with him about uh, this game of Biblios, and you loved it so much. You actually changed your avatar there for a while, too. I will not rest until Biblios is in, like, the top 100 or something like that. So, um, you know, by way of introduction, Steve, you know, can you just tell us a little bit about your kind of first experience with the game, and uh, you know how you first came to to know scripts and Scribes, and why it's a game that that kind of grabbed you from the start.
1: Well, when I got a hold of it, it was uh, his original working title for it was actually Scriptorium, which apparently was taken. So after the wow. first print run of of fifty copies, I think that that it looked very much like Steve made him himself in his garage, mm-hmm. and he may very well have. He uh, he had to change the name to Scripts and Scribes. So I actually had. I think I still have uh, the very first one, Scriptorium. It had an extra card in it. You know, this you could tell this was totally a guy doing this himself because he loved it. But you know, he was assembling the cards, and mine came with like an extra gold card. So for the longest time, I could not figure out figure out why uh, my my cards never quite added out correctly when you divide them later in the game. So it was uh, it took a little <laughs> while, and I was like, wait a minute, this is just this math is wrong. So um, I remember Steve posting on Board Game Geek uh, saying that he wanted to send out some review copies. And he was selling this thing for something like 10 bucks shipped, which was insanely cheap. And I was pretty new to gaming at that point. I think I'd done a handful of reviews. So I sent him uh, you know, a geek mail and said, hey, I'd love to review this. I think I paid for the shipping because I was nice. And I remember getting it home. And I don't know if it was because it was very early in my gaming career or if it's just because the game is so pure at what it does. But from the first play, I went, oh, man, that's fantastic. Um we had already played for sale at that point, which I think is the closest um probably the closest comparison to uh scripts and scribes biblios
0: right I uh, would agree with, with
1: that with the you know the two part auction game the the mechanics of it are different, but and the philosophy is kind of the same but uh Biblios did so many things that I thought was better right away, including the ability to play two, which is always a big deal for me. a lot of my gaming is done with two, so it was uh very nice to be able to get the same sort of vibe in a smaller package with less people.
0: Yeah, you know, I kind of had a a lot of the same experiences as you did, and it's funny you brought up um, for sale, because that is kind of the closest analog that I can find um, to uh, Biblios or scripts and Scribes. I think we'll, we'll start calling it Biblios because that's the way I think a lot of people are familiar with it. Um, and it's thanks true. for letting me know about Scriptorium because I, I, I'd never even known that. So that, that was that's a nice, uh, interesting little uh, tidbit that you have there. And I would totally agree. I, I think Dr. Finn probably did make these. Um, I know he did the original artwork um, himself, and my edition came in like a plastic VHS case. You know, oh, he had, you have the VHS
1: he, I, case. Those are yeah, awesome. Yeah,
0: yeah, right? yeah. No, I'm, I'm old school. I'm old school.
1: <laughs> I ha, well, the, and, the original box came in, in the, the paper for Scriptorium, and I know he switched to the VHS boxes because he had another game that he put out called Charioteer um, right. around that same time that I'd gotten my hands on as well. And I don't know what the heck I ever did with it because it was such a great little game. Um, but yeah, the VHS box, was that was classy.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and and you could kind of tell, you know, he might have gotten himself a, a metric gross ton of them from, uh, you know, the, <laughs> the video industry as it was going out, and said, hey, wait a minute, I can repurpose these as uh, game boxes, and they actually worked quite nicely, so that was kind of cool. Um, yeah, so my experience was similar to yours, in that, you know, I got this game, and it had that very distinct A phase, B phase kind of thing, you know, yeah, where the whole first part of the game is really just setting yourself up for the second part of the game. Um, And I really like that. And I like the different currencies of the game. You know, for sale, it's very simple. You know, you have money, you have property. Um, and in Biblios, you basically have these four different currencies, and it's almost like a you're, you're, it's almost like a horse race too. There's a little bit of, of betting going on there because you're, you're trying to sort of uh, accumulate the most, you know, kind of stock if you want to think of it that way. You almost look at it as a stock game. You're trying to accumulate the most in each of these different colors, uh, each of which are kind of loosely thematically tied to uh, the idea of uh, monks, you know, producing these uh, great works. Um, you know, needing ink and needing you know uh, vellum and and all these different things, but but actually it's it's different colors, okay? And right. you're you're trying to collect the most of those, and so it, it's always tense because you know if you bid um, with you know a color you know that you were trying to collect previously and a high value because you think this card is going to be actually more of the tipping point based on what you saw from the initial round, then maybe I can get the majority still in this one and that one, and it, it really just, there's a lot going on in this very, very simple, from a mechanical standpoint, game. And so, like you, uh, you know, I also played a lot two-player with my wife, especially in the early days. And uh, this game was perfect. You know, you you really can't play for sale with two. And I I don't know that the decisions are anywhere near as meaty, uh, certainly, in for sale. Although I love for sale and still have it in my collection. I'm not knocking it. But uh, this is kind of like, you know, gamers like to use this term. And I think it's a little overused. It's like, oh, this is that game on steroids. You know, this is, you know. And, 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 you know, Biblios kind of was that for sale on steroids. It was like the next level of that concept in a board game. And so it was something that I really enjoyed. Um, for those people who aren't familiar, perhaps, with it, and given your mission is to make sure that everybody knows about this game, can you give us a little bit more detail? Would you mind kind of running through the basics of the game, how it's played, um, you know, so that we're not just dealing with this little skeleton of ideas that I'm throwing out there?
1: Sure. Um, you know, first of all, when you're talking about the currencies, it's it's brilliant because they said things shift, and that's a driving force in the game. So what you get is five different sets of cards, um, the categories. I, to me, this is an area-majority game done with cards, you know, area-majority set collection, because you're really trying to get the bigger set of cards. So you've got the five different colors. Um, what I think is particularly neat is that um, two of the sets are different than the other three. So the blue and the green, uh, the card values are four, three, and two, whereas the orange, um, I guess it's orange, brown, and red, I believe, are twos and ones. The total value of the the twos and ones sets, the orange, brown, and red, is a total value of 11. And then the value of the other sets, the total is 25. So going by simple math, you know if you hit six on the lower sets or 13 on the bigger sets, you win the majority. What's interesting about the, the game is that at setup, you're going to take out a random number of cards depending on how many players are in the game. Uh, there's a guideline for how many to take out. So you never know if the cards you're looking for are in there. You could pull out, uh, I think in a two-player game, I think you pull out 21 of them. So you have a pretty wide disparity between what may or may not be in the game. Um, so you, you end up having this floating middle point that you're trying to play around. So in the beginning, you, you shuffle up the deck of cards, and on your turn, um, one of my favorite mechanisms, and I think this is what makes part A of the game my favorite. I prefer it to part B just because I think this part, uh, this, this mechanic is so phenomenal. You have to look at cards one at a time, one for each player in the game, and then one that's going to go into the auction pile. So one at a time, you get to look at the, the top card of the deck, and then you either give it to somebody at the table or yourself, or you put it into the auction table, which is going to be used in phase B of the game. So you've already got this from the very first card turn. You've got this wonderful tension. I'm flipping this over. When do I stop and take my card? Which of these is the one I really want? Okay, well, if, if I see a great card on flip number one and I take it, now I have to watch with total anxiety as I'm looking at the cards you're going to get. And I know what I'm giving to my opponents. And I, I know that if I took a chance and went for what I thought was the best card on flip one. I may very well the next card see exactly what I want or maybe even more importantly, what I don't want you to have. So you go through the deck this way, divvying out all these cards, creating the auction pile for phase two and, and stocking your opponents with, with their hands. Um, and then phase two comes and uh, we have a separate sort of game that happens. Um, one of the things I didn't, I didn't mention there is you have gold cards in values of three, two and one. And the gold cards are going to be used to buy stuff in the second half of the game. So in addition to those five sets, you have gold cards floating around in values of three, two, and one. The second half of the game, we take uh, what was put in the auction pile, shuffle it up so that nobody knows the order of what went in, and we do an auction around the table for every card in that deck, one at a time. And you have two different types of currencies, as Jeff alluded to earlier. You have the gold cards. So anytime a non-gold card is up for auction, you're going to pay for that with your gold. So it's important in phase one to collect gold so that you can buy more cards in phase two. There's also, anytime a gold card comes up, you have the opportunity to get those in your hand. This is one of my favorite parts too. You pay for those cards, the gold cards, by using other cards that were in your hand. So if there's a card out on the table and we're bidding around it, let's say it's the, the red two, which I really want so I can make my majority, We go around the table bidding the number of cards you're willing to discard. And everybody has a crack at this, and you discard those cards face down out of the game. So you've done two things. You've shifted that majority again around that floating point because we still don't know how many cards are in the game altogether. You know what you've seen. But that that point just shifted again because now you took cards out of the game that other people may not even know were in the game, which may color people's perceptions of what's actually going to be available. Uh, We do this until... All the cards in that pile are gone. And then we compare our sets to what the, uh, to each other. So you have the biggest set, and there's the dice on the scoreboard. Also another brilliant mechanic, I think, Jeff, just, just the way that this worked. There's the five different colors. They all start at a value of three. Uh, throughout the game, there's going to be bishop cards that come up. And the bishop cards can either raise or lower the values of the dice. So in Jeff's allusion to a stock market game, one of the things you're doing is trying to s- increase the value of the set that the majority that you think you have the biggest one in. Um, so if I know that I'm winning Browns because I've done the math and I figured this out, like, Hey, I've got this. I want to get every one of those Bishop cards I can to pump up the value of Brown. Conversely, someone may think someone else at the table may think that they've got that majority. So if they're trying to push that up, they're actually helping you. So there's a, a really great interplay between the, the players there. It's, it's not uh, interactive in the, I suppose, the classic Ameritrash sense of I'm invading your territory, but your, your need to pay attention to the other players at the table is, is huge. Uh, definitely more bigger than in for sale. You know, For sale, you can kind of sit there and you don't necessarily have to pay the most attention, but this one, you really have to pay attention to what everybody else at the table's doing.
0: Well, thanks for that overview because, uh, you know, there's number one, I forgot that there was a fifth color, which shows you uh, why I had you on the show.
1: (laughs) That's all right. I forgot that there was golden bishops, so it's fine.
0: (laughs) But, uh, yeah, no, uh, in all seriousness, I I appreciate that overview because you highlighted perfectly all of the sort of great uh, mechanisms in the game. Um, You know, that that flipping of the cards creates that tension you're talking about, and it can be agonizing sometimes. Um, It's wonderful, isn't it, to to flip that card? And
1: and and the best one is when it's something that's sort of a middling use to you. You're like, I don't know, like this this card could be helpful to me, right? But there's probably something better. And so you sit there right. and you go like, yeah, but what if I get a bunch of stuff I don't want? And that's that's where that that phase gets you. Plus, I know if I flip that card and I I took something, I'm like, okay, I'm pretty good with my with my decision on that. And the next thing I come up with something I know you want or something that just gave you the majority over me. It's, it's like, oh, how can I get that back now? Like, did I just give away the game? You know, it's, it's, such, a, um, it's such a deep mechanic because it, it gives every player, in a two-player game, you have at least three choices on your turn, one for your opponent, one for the auction pile, one for me. And you add players to that, and then every turn you have that extra decision.
0: Absolutely. And that creates that kind of tension that we're talking about. And, and the other thing that's really interesting that I want to highlight, uh, adding on to what you said, is the notion of, okay, during the, the course of the game, I'm really going for, say, red and green. But I've also collected quite a bit of brown. But they're all, like, low-value browns. You know, they're, they're, they're not, like, super high. And I'm like, all right, this is going to be the currency that I'm going to use in the auction phase, you know, because I'm trying to accumulate. I'm really going to go for red, and I'm going to go for, you know, I think I just said green, right? But brown, brown, I've accumulated some cards. People have been passing them to me. Uh, I don't even know that everybody's aware that I have this much brown, but I don't really care about brown because brown's value is like two right now. Uh, It's been tanked through the course of the game, and I know I put at least one bishop card in there, and, you know, maybe, you know, I'm just going to dump brown. I'm going to dump brown. That's going to be... What I'm going to use uh, in the auction phase. And so the auction phase begins and you start noticing, like, all right, I, I spent some brown cards to, you know, buy this red card. I'm like, oh, cool, you know, because mathematically I think now I have the majority. However, everybody else is dumping brown. Like everybody else is getting right. rid of it. I'm like, wait a minute, maybe I got a shot at brown now. And so, like, you know, then you kind of reach this tipping point where you're like, all right. I've been using that as like my cash. I've been making it rain. And now I'm kind of thinking, (laughs) now I'm kind of thinking if I hold on to just a little bit of this brown, I could win that. And sure, it's two points, but maybe I'll have the opportunity to bump it up later if I start to get that idea. Or perhaps I'll just let it sit at two. I can't tell you how many games have been won when I play. By just a little two-value card or something, you know, that just just tip just tips the scale slightly in my favor at the end, and it wasn't even really a a, a currency that I was looking for. I wasn't stockpiling that. And I, I uh, agree. You know, yeah, yeah. I mean, so you've had that happen to you too?
1: Oh, very much so. It's um, it, it, one of the things that I, I've seen happen probably just as much as you you determine that 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 card is a color that yeah I'm going to use these to buy more gold I I don't really care about this color because I don't think I can win it and you see those signals from other players and so you start to say okay well I don't have a huge number here but it's looking like no one else is even touching this so and again this is where that floating I guess the floating majority point um is kind of very exciting again because, you know, I said if you have, uh, you know, the Browns are worth a total of 11 points. Well, if you only have three, it means, you know, you don't clearly have the full half, but you start seeing other stuff go out of the game or other stuff floating around the table and you can start to figure out where that other percentage might be and where the actual I have the most number starts sliding down from six to five to four to a point where it's like, oh, three is now, if you have three, that's actually the most because it, it slid its way down. It's such an interesting concept to me that works so amazingly well uh, in that it's driven by the players. It's not artificially created by a game rule or anything like that. It's it's created by what the players are doing. And one of the things I think is key, I, I don't know if Steve was a for, former Magic player, but one of the concepts you're talking about there is signaling. Um, and in a draft environment where you're you know, passing packs of cards around, you have to pay attention to the signal that you're getting. If you're not seeing any blue cards and you're trying to pick blue out of those packs, you're going to suffer because someone to your left or right is clearly taking those before they're getting to you and they're leaving you scraps. So you have to pay attention to that sort of thing to, and go where the game and the players are pushing you into because there's going to be something that's untapped so the, the paying attention to that is is huge i've i think you know anytime you're i guess any player count really you have a well if you're playing three players if you can win three of the uh, three of the colors you're going to win if you're playing two uh, players you win three of the colors you probably win there's a chance the other values could be worth more but once you get to four players you really only need to win two and sometimes you can do it with one if the value's high enough so if you can eke out that second extra color like you're talking about, it, it can be huge. I mean, you're talking about a game where you don't score a lot of points. So getting two points is pretty big. One of the things that I like best about the game is that as you switch to starting to collect that other color, in your example, brown, um, I know now that no one else is collecting brown. It looks like I can steal this. Well, I still still need to buy other cards. So what am I going to use? What ends up happening is you start dipping into... The colors you were really focused on, uh, you know, in your example, I think it was green and and red, and you start saying to yourself, okay, well, I know I have this one, but I need to dip down a little bit because I need to buy other cards. How far into those colors can I now dip to make sure that I maintain my majority? So it actually forces you at some point in the game to probably use the things you were collecting the most, which again, is another one of those like, oh man, I really don't want to get rid of this. Um, I guess this, this is a good point to talk about one of the other cool rules that I think the game has, and that's the uh, letters on the cards for the tiebreakers. Oh, yeah. right. I think this is, is pretty awesome. The, the lowest-valued card in the set has a letter A on it, and then it goes up through the highest-ranking cards. If there's a tie in those majorities at the end, the, per, uh, the player with the card closest to A would win the majority, even if they're tied. What that does which I think is also really neat is it assigns almost a decimal value to the end of the card so that in the, uh, in the smaller sets, the um, green, red and and brown where you've got um, you know, only 11 total points. Having that number one with the a is hugely advantageous, you know, so you can start to think about getting which cards you're going to get rid of in terms of that as well. And also play those as almost a decimal because I know if, if I have six of the cards and I have the A, well, that means the most you can have is five of the points, you know? So I can get rid of freely at least one. And then I say to myself, well, what are the odds that you actually have all five of those other ones? Especially if you're playing a multiplayer game, the odds of that aren't very good. So I can start to get rid of more.
0: <laughs> yeah, and that's where the gambling comes in, doesn't it?
1: Very much so. It's, yeah, it, it's almost got that push your luck of how low can you go. Right, right. And those letters add that, they, they add that layer to that concept, which in my opinion just makes the game, you know, it's one of those things that just ratchets it up another notch where nothing silly like, well, you guys are going to share points. No, someone's winning those points.
0: Right, right. Yeah, and you know, it's, it's one of the things about that game that, um, boy, it, it's it's like a perfectly, you know, there's lots of diamonds out there, especially now, you know, there's a lot of, what I call the dreaded sevens that are out there right now. There's there's a lot of diamonds <laughs> out there. You know what I mean? And they're good. They're yep. fine. There's nothing wrong with them. But the degree to which games are polished nowadays, uh, if we're going to continue with the diamond metaphor, has really dropped, I feel. And uh, you know, I almost feel like uh, quite a lot of games are actually kind of being beta tested on us um, by the designers and publishers who we'll release a game and then later release patches for it, you know, and say, oh, okay, well, we'll deal with that in the expansion or we'll do a revised rulebook or a living rule book, you know, which is a term that I absolutely hate. Um, you know, there, there's, there's all of these kinds of things. And, uh, you know, this is a game, though, that is so highly polished. I mean, the game just shines. And that, that little tiny piece that you just added there, um, in the, in your explanation about the letters on the cards, I had completely forgotten about that, and yet I remember when I played the game, I was like, I don't think there's anything this guy didn't think of. Like it's everything is here, like there's nothing, there's nothing extraneous, and there's also nothing that was missed. And the game mechanically works. Beautifully, it just it it hums, and I've really come to appreciate about that about some game designs. You know, there are some game designs that I feel are kind of just perfect. You know, and you can see the development, you can feel the the play testing, and you know that you have got a finished product here. This isn't something that was kind of released half baked or was only play tested by some dude named Chuck and his friends. This, this uh, don't, is something Ch- Chuck
1: puts out quality products. Okay, <laughs>
0: Chuck does. Chuck does. Um, he's my default, you know, just any guy, you know, some dude named Chuck. Um, <laughs> and, and I think that this game really shows that kind of um, development and polishing to the game. That you know everything, as you said, down to the tie breaks. You know that there's none of those silly rules. Um, you know of well, you know who who who's the winner. You know. Um, And and I think that that just shows a a dedication to the craft of the design that I really appreciate. And I love your explanation of it with, you know, the decimals, um, because it is. It's almost like adding a decimal value to it. Um, Let me ask you this, since we're kind of talking about this. um, You've used mathematics quite a bit to kind of describe this game to people. Um, And yet it's a game that is fairly random in some elements, you know. The, the kind of people who usually like these kind of mathy games would, would probably be the kind of people who want a perfect information game. They don't right. want you to remove cards from the game because now I don't know, and I want to know, and I want to math it out, and I want to be able to calculate whether or not you know I've got that. Um, To me, it sort of seems like that would take a lot of the the spirit out of the game. But, uh, you know, I I can also, and I have seen that kind of levied as a complaint that, you know, uh, I really invested heavily in red and, you know, I accumulated all these cards because this is how many are supposed to be in there. And it turns out, basically, I had all the cards and I didn't need that much. And that screwed up the game. and, And people get their feathers ruffled a little bit about it. Where do you stand on that kind of. Um, uh, perfect information versus that kind of set-up randomness in this game of Biblios.
1: That's an interesting point. You know, I, I, um, I like traditional card games. I'm a, I'm a big fan of spades. Um, I tend to like trick-takers in general, and I can't fathom playing a game. Uh, Trump Tricks game is probably my favorite trick-taker by uh, Gunther Burkhardt. And uh, I cannot fathom having non-perfect information in that game because it's really important to how the to the flow of the game to know what's in there. Just like when you play spades, you, you know how many how many aces you know how many spades are in the deck. Honestly, you know it's one of those things that drives that game. I think in Biblios, if you are If you are playing that game, I've seen people do exactly what you've said, where, well, I collected the majority. I collected the 13 points necessary to win the blue, and no one else collected any. Well, yeah, because they knew you had the 13 points in blue because they were paying attention to you. That's on you, not on the game. That's how I feel about that one. I think making that game a perfect information game would take out that gambling aspect. It takes out uh, the need for... It takes out the need for the the players to pay attention because you can count and know that, okay, there's 25 points worth of blue and orange in here, and I I have to get 13 points or I have to make sure that I know how many points everybody has. I think as you grow in player count, you lose the ability to keep track of everything anyway. There's just too much going on, too many cards being passed around. Uh, to me, if you, if, you were not, if you were to not have the random cards come out of that game, I honestly don't think I'd play it. <laughs> that sounds kind of harsh, I think, but I don't, I don't want a game like that that's perfect information. You'll take what is a half-hour, fairly meaty filler game and turn it into something that's going to take an hour and a half, and then those same people will complain that they're not getting enough game out of the amount of time it takes to play.
0: That's an interesting point. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's that sort of uh, uh, time investment and payoff in game terms. And, you know, I I could certainly see people leveling, uh, you know, that criticism at the attempted fix of making everything uh, perfect information, which I'm by no means personally suggesting. I don't think the game needs anything. I don't think it needs that perfect information for exactly the reasons that you discussed. Um, You know, number one, uh, it takes kind of that uh, estimation of the value, you know, that's out there. You know, we haven't seen that many in Phase A. We didn't see that many green cards, so uh, you know, maybe there's a lot of green taken out of that deck, or there's going to be a lot of green in that auction deck. One of the two things.
1: Mm-hmm. You don't have that information either. So there's there's a lot you don't know about game state at any given time, which right. is which is a strength. I don't know. To me, to me, you know, trying to make this game anything other than what it is you're gonna you're gonna dilute the experience either by making it longer or by taking out some of the parts that make it fun i don't I don't feel I don't say this about many games. This little game is self contained perfection in its own little world. Its mechanisms roll and move so effortlessly and so organically that to try to bolt anything else on or take one of those pieces out or tinker with it in any sort of way is just going to make it start to lurch and clunk as it's running, as opposed to this thing running and you don't even hear it. It's one of those games where it does, it does the amazing act of the rules disappear because right, they're so right. transparent in the gameplay that... Uh, Kark is a great example of this, is another sort of classic that I, that I love, that the rules are so simple, intuitive, and straightforward that they disappear. You never have to go like, oh, we flipped the orange one with the A. Well, now we have to sacrifice a kitten and sell off one of your children. It's none of those, ex- <laughs> exception, <laughs> those exception-based rule books that we've become so right, accustomed right. to. There's nothing in yeah, that absolutely.
0: here. Yeah, it, it kind of, uh, I like your analogy to an engine. It's one I've used before. You know, this, this game is, is uh, uh, it's kind of like the Honda Goldwing as opposed to the Harley Davidson. You know what I mean? <laughs> The, uh, very much the Harley so. is loud and obnoxious, and you know, uh, rumbly, and and the the Goldwing, you turn that thing on, and unless you're standing right next to it, you don't even know if it's running. Um, right. And so it, it very much kind of has that uh, feel to it. And I agree with you. I, I just kind of uh, I was trying to, uh, you know, see if we could kind of pin down because what we what both of us are kind of dancing around is that the game is actually uh, maybe even a little fragile. Um, and that, that's a good thing because everything is so perfectly kind of balanced and everything works so well together that if you start to, as you said, tinker with it, I think you're going to really damage it to the point where it's now not going to work. You know, you're going to break it. And, and that would be a shame because as you said, there are so many games and I don't want to, you know, do a soapbox thing here, but there are so many games that I see that are released nowadays that I kind of wonder it's like, okay, am I really getting the full game here, or did they hold something back for an expansion, you know? Right, <laughs> right. Is, is this going to be something that they're going to kind of finish later? And, you know, this game, like you said, is just completely self-contained, doesn't need anything else ever. Um, there's nothing else you would ever want or need with this game. And so, therefore, it really is kind of that perfect kind of thing. Uh, the only thing that I don't like about it is that it doesn't play five, since I'm a family of five. So, boo right. uh, to that. But other than that, uh, it, it's a great game. While we're talking about player count, what do you think about that? What What are the, the best player counts, in your opinion, for Scripts and Scribes? Or is there not a, a best player count?
1: I was actually horribly going to interrupt you and ask you that question. So, you stole my thunder. Um <laughs> I- you know, I, I think it's, it's one of those awesome games that the player count is accurate, 2, 3, and 4. It works perfectly well at 2, 3, and 4. You get a different experience. Um, as the player count goes up, I say the chaos factor goes up a little bit because there's, there's more people at the table for you to try to keep an eye on what's out there. Um, I know that as the player count goes up, less cards are removed from the deck at random. So you have a larger percentage of the cards in the game, which makes that floating variable variable point a little different because the odds are that majority of the cards in each color are there. Uh, so you can, you can bank on a little bit, but not totally. Um, given my druthers and I could play with any count of people, I would say I would play with three more often than the other two. That said, I've played this game a ton, two player, um, I think it's a fantastic two player game it's not it's not overtly confrontational so if you have uh, you know somebody who plays games with you that doesn't like heads up confrontation this isn't like that um again because you're basically collecting cards but three this this is also another um wonderful point for for biblios I want to call it scripts and scribes. I called it that for so long um biblios Biblios is one of those rare games that plays three and there's no penalty to a third player. You know what I mean there? There's a lot of games that, that claim Absolutely. to play three, and they really don't handle it as well as you think they should, or they have some sort of rules to make the third player work. This game plays three as, effortly and, as effortlessly and beautifully as um, Knights of Charlemagne, which is one of my favorite Kinesia card games for for three players. It just, and again, I think this is a testament to the the engine in the game. It doesn't need anything... To make it work differently at those different player counts, you just changed what's in the deck by adding uh, or removing more cards depending on player count. So it, it creates the same atmosphere as the other player counts and does it in a way that doesn't make one player feel like they're always left out. It's not always the, like a revolving two against one sort of deal. Um, and, and So I guess in that way it works like a good trick taker, but there's not a lot of good trick takers for three.
0: Well, you know, I'm not going to say anything more to that because uh, I think you said it perfectly. So I'm just going to say I agree. Uh, it is funny, though, that you mentioned Reiner Canizia because I was going to ask you about that because uh, a lot of Dr. Finn's games... Now, we're, we're going to talk a little bit in just a minute here uh, when we wrap up our conversation about uh, scripts and scribes, biblios. Um, a lot of Dr. Finn's games are very mathematical. You know, They're very kind of pure um, in that sense, they remind me quite a bit of games by Reiner Knizia. Um, and so I was kind of curious, um, you know, you brought that name up as well. So what are your thoughts about that? Do, do these two designers have a connection or an empathy with each other, do you feel?
1: That's an interesting point, because they're easily my top two favorite designers. And I've never put that connection together at all until until the words just came out of my mouth about Knights of Charlemagne. Um, I think what they both do incredibly well, and, and I don't know, you'd have to think that Steve is a fan of, of, uh, of Reiner Kinesia, who isn't really for the most part. So I think the one thing that both of those gentlemen do incredibly well is make a whole lot of game out of a very simple package. They are not the over the top modern designers. I'd say in a lot of ways, the doctor finn's games are very old school and i mean that in the as as an utmost compliment you know they they have the that same simplicity to them that a lot of early Kinesia designs did where they are revolving around various math points and and uh playing with numbers um i will say that i don't think anyone is quite as good at that as as rainer Kinesia. he's he's amazing at working with small numbers and uh, driving games around that. But I would say there's, there's got to be some influence there because a game like Biblios feels like something Reiner Knizia could have designed.
0: Yeah, you know, I would agree. And I, I think about some of the new games uh, of his that I've taken a look at. Games like uh, uh, Let Them Eat Shrimp, which was just released, and uh, uh, the Institute for Magical Arts, and, and these other games. And even going back to games like Slush Fund, uh, which was uh, another early... Oh, Dark I Finn forgot game about that,
1: that... that one. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah, I... yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, that, that, that's another classic that VHS was... box game. Yeah. That was um, like, a,
1: like four-player battle line, almost like... Um... Uh, what's the other kniz you get? Loot, the game of the pirates.
0: Yep, absolutely, yep. And and so I, I've kind of thought that there was a little bit of a, a similarity there for a while in that mechanically, the games are so, as you said, simple, pure, um, and easy to wrap your mind around and very overtly mathematically based. And yeah, there's a theme there, um, but it's, it's a tenuous connection to the theme. You know, when I'm playing Biblio's I don't feel like a monk writing manuscripts and creating beautiful illuminated manuscripts. I mean, sorry, I don't, you know, when, when, when I'm playing, um, you know, some of these, these other games, let them eat shrimp, you know, I'm placing these tiles um, down onto this shared game board. um, But I don't really feel like I'm a fish running around. I'm just kind of placing tiles to gain tiles, to place tiles kind of thing. It's very mechanical. And, you Know there are some people who really don't like that, you know, there and and many times, honestly, that's me. I mean, that's why I kind of have this love hate relationship with Kinesia games. Um, you know, I love Tigris and Euphrates, um, you know, I really do respect and enjoy Ra. Um, but there are other titles of his that I'm just like, man, you know, this is just math the game. Um, Dr. Finn <laughs> seems to <laughs> exactly, you know, but Dr. Finn seems to avoid that, at least for me personally, you know, I can. I can see that the the veneer of theme is rather thin, and yet I still really enjoy the game. You know, as as a matter of fact, interestingly enough, I would say Slush Fund is one of the more thematic games that the guy ever made because it's all about the peddling of money, influence, and power. And uh, as you beautifully described, kind of like a, a four player game of battle line, you know, and. I really think that that's just a, a, a fantastic game. And it kind of captures the feel of politics in this modern age that we're living in. So, you know, that, that actually I kind of feel is very thematic. But a lot of his other games are just this wonderful kind of mechanical thing with, uh, you know, this veneer of, of theme that, that's enough to kind of make it look pretty, put me into a mind state that I'm like, oh, okay, cool, this is what I'm doing. Uh, would you agree with that, that the themes in his games are kind of a thin veneer? or do you think I've missed the theme, uh, as you know Martin Griffiths explained to me on our uh, Tigris and Euphrates episode, where he was really explaining to me how deeply thematic that game is, and I'm still not sure I <laughs> sure buy it. Is. it. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think about all that?
1: Uh, well, you, you know, you and I have had this discussion many times, not recorded. Um, you're very much a theme guy. I'm very much an I don't care at all guy. Um, for me, the, the the game itself is more important than the theme. Um, that said, I do feel like like Steve tries uh, to get the theme tied in there somewhat. I will tell you that I think um, I think let them eat shrimp is one of the better ones that he did thematically. The the pieces and the actions of things kind of work together fairly nicely. Um, Institute of Magical Arts, I think he did a, a a solid job on. I to me, Biblios is easily the least thematic of his games um because it's you know and and that's not a knock against it it's almost impossible to have a lot of theme on a very basic set collection type game uh, abyss is a great version um a great similarity there uh they went through all this trouble to create this just astoundingly nice artwork for abyss it's got no theme it's a you know you're, you're collecting sets of cards. So there is really nothing to it. Uh, I, I will never fault somebody for that. I think uh, I don't think it's it's probably first in Steve's world. Although I do believe he has a doctorate in uh, in medieval studies or something like that, which is where Biblios actually came from. Right, right. I know. I know he is actually a doctor, so uh, that was one that was close to his heart. You know, I, I don't know that it's it's that important to him. I could. I would imagine that Reiner Knizia probably never cared in the slightest. He said, here's a game, publisher, you do your thing. Call it what you want. Use whatever symbols you want. I don't care. So I don't know. To, to some guys, it's, it's, a, it's the driving force behind the game. For others, it's probably a burden at the end of design. And I feel like uh, I would think that Dr. Finn slides more towards the it's a burden at the end of the design than the other way around.
0: Yeah, I've never heard it put that way, but uh, that's an excellent way to put it. Um, I, I can't think of any anything to add to that, that idea of... Uh Burden at the end or driving force is a great way to describe those kind of two philosophies. Um, so, you and I agree that, you know, theme is not necessarily strong in uh, Biblio, Scripts, and Scribes, um, but you're arguing that the theme is stronger in some of his newer games. Um, so, uh, why don't we take a moment to kind of talk a little bit about those because uh, this is kind of the Dr. Finn episode, I guess. So, um, two of the titles that I'm uh, most recently familiar with are the ones you mentioned which is let them eat shrimp and the institute for magical arts and so um, real briefly um, the let them eat shrimp game uh is a game for i believe it's a two to five players um and you are basically working off of a shared board that shows uh these little kind of color-coded little shapes they're like um I think they're supposed to be like uh, uh, fish eggs or something. Um, and then there's these sharks, and you know the sharks are swimming in the water. And there's different shapes of tiles. So you have hexagons and you have trapezoids and you have uh, rhombuses and you know, all of these different shapes, triangles, of course. And what you're trying to do is you're placing them onto this grid board. And every time you place a tile, you're going to be covering up, these little symbols that are on the board, which are going to then allow you to take one or more tiles from the supply back kind of behind your screen. So every player kind of has their own supply at the start of the game of these little fish tiles and then you're trying to place them on the board in such a way that you're gaining more tiles. Hopefully you're getting a higher return on your investment than uh, you originally started with or you're trying to uh, cover up little shrimp um, pictures because those are just worth straight points at the end of the game. And you're trying to avoid the sharks because when you Uh, When you hit the sharks then you have to roll the shark die. And the, the shark die is going to actually take away uh, one of the tiles that you have kind of collected behind your screen. So it's this really interesting, again, you know, little mechanical kind of a game. And what you're trying to do, at least in the base game, is you are trying to accumulate sets of tiles. So it reminds me a little bit of, of a Kinesia, again, right there, right? Uh, you're trying to collect sets of tiles, one of each shape, Um, making a complete set so that you can score points at the end of the game and find out who won. However, you're having to use the very things that you're trying to score, which uh, other designers have done as well, and it creates a lot of tension because it's like, ooh, you know, I could place this tile here, um, this large hexagon tile, and that's going to get me a trapezoid, and it's going to get me a triangle, Um, which is cool because I was short uh, a triangle and a trapezoid in my set collecting, but now I'm short a hexagon, and there's very few hexagons left, but I know I can substitute, you know, shrimp in as wilds later, and so, you know, uh, what do I do? And so there's a lot of kind of thought behind the game as you're playing. It's really quite thinky. Um, for a game that kind of presents such a light theme, um, but I wouldn't necessarily have described it as like this thematic experience. So I'm kind of curious what your uh, experience with the game has been thus far, and I'm really curious about your statement about how you feel it's thematic. So uh, let me turn it over to you at this point.
1: One of the this is funny that when you said uh, like, "Hey, I can get." I can get hexagon or I can get triangle. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm going, no, Jeff, you're getting yellow fish or you're getting green fish. Because I, <laughs> I actually never think of them about the shape of the tile, which is very, very weird because normally I'm that guy. It's really funny. We have, we have almost the exact opposite stance on this one that we usually do, which is kind of neat. Um, for me, I, I suppose I, I like the, the idea of you're kind of building, you know, almost like building a school of, sh- of uh, fish out on the board and the i like that there's the shrimp that you're trying to collect the shrimp although i don't think any of the fish in this game would actually eat a shrimp biologically but hey i'm no um ichthyologist <laughs> uh, i only play one on tv and uh i, you're, I love you're like george how you...
0: costanza i reached down into the into the great beast <laughs> <laughs> pulling out the golf ball
1: <laughs> exactly so i hey. i think uh <coughs> Pardon me, edit out my cough. I think that um, the use of the sharks and the um, starfish for a little bit of random in there um, is kind of a nice tie-in. You know, I guess I guess they don't – there's no real t- integration of, okay, the, I guess the shark maybe eats the fish. I might be reaching for this one. But that one to me, I think it's because of the art and the presentation of the board – draws me in a lot more and I'm actually sort of invested in creating this little ocean and trying to avoid the sharks because I know the sharks are bad and I want my little fishies to be safe from the sharks. I don't know that I can even give it a good explanation other than um, that one art wise pulls me in a lot more and just makes me feel like I'm playing with schools of fish and I'm a big fan of the uh, the overall presentation of that game visually. Um, you want to talk a little bit about the gameplay, too?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let's, let's talk a little bit about it. Um, how, uh, the, how many... You know,
1: how, sorry, have you played it both ways, the, the family version and the advanced version?
0: I've only played the family version thus far, but I knew you had cool. played the advanced version, so I figured, okay, cool, we can actually do justice to this game uh, right. a little bit talking about it. So you want to tell us a little... I, I described the family version for those of you, you do. out there listening. Um, so yeah, can you j- tell us about the advanced
1: yeah, the 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 family version and the advanced version share the basic end goal of you're trying to get sets of all four different types of fish tiles, not not triangles or rhombuses, you know, blue fish and green fish. So you're still trying <laughs> They're to collect, shapes, man. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> you're trying to get the yellow clown loach and the I don't, I don't even know what these fish are, but you're you're trying to collect the same sort of sets, four of a kind. Um, and you also get to use your fish eggs at the end of the game for a while, then your shrimp are your points. So the same basic scoring uh, works for the end of the game. It, the, the advanced version plays incredibly differently. Instead of having a choice of what you're going to play each turn, the game is played in rounds, and at the start of a round, each player takes one, um, one tile of each fish type off of their little board that they have, and they set it out kind of off to the side and then during that round they have to play each of those fish tiles so I can't play two hexagons in a round I have to just play one and make use of the other three tiles Um, anytime you can't fill one of those slots at the beginning of the round you use a fish egg and you trade that fish egg in and then you take whichever tile or if you're missing multiples you trade in multiple fish eggs and you make your set for that round. So you're still trying to collect stuff for later on, but even more importantly for um, than, than just for the end of the game, you need to make sure you have at least one of each tile for each round. So if I go real heavy and start collecting reds, that means I'm not going to have any of the yellow hexagons, so I'm going to be using my fish eggs for that. So it's really important to, um, to try to balance that going forward. Now, I'll say one of the things that the advanced version does really well is by... By forcing you to use each of your different types of fish tile, it drives the interaction of the game a lot. Um, I have to pay attention to what you're doing and what you've used so far, so I know what you have left. Because as the board fills out, space, good spaces disappear quickly, and you're left with the tough placements or or dead placements. Even worse, um, if you you know can't use your little green fish, the little triangle piece. Uh, lots of times you're just putting that on the board because you have to play it so it really forces you to pay attention to what other people are doing and you want to try to push towards areas that you can make a play on with a later tile so lots of times you're sacrificing one or two of the tiles early in the round to set yourself up for a big score with the, the yellow hexagon tile sometimes you do that first because it's right there and then you spend the rest of the round just scrapping trying to get what you can um, in the rules you you lose either version of the game if you run out of fish eggs and I'm sure you guys have never had that happen in the family game right I, I me neither but every game I've played of the advanced version has had someone has lost that way it it's it's a much much tougher version of the game so if you like um, the, puzzle-like, uh, the puzzle-like atmosphere of the game where you're, you know, you're kind of building a board using these geometric shapes. If you like that part and you say, well, I wish it had just a little bit more tooth to it, it does have plenty of thinking about trying to maximize what you're getting uh, in the family game. That's really what you're trying to do. Every piece, since you can put them anywhere you want, you're really trying to maximize your returns. In the advanced game, you are trying to minimize losses because things are going to bite you and you're just going to have to touch sharks at some point. It's, it's really part of the balancing act. Um, I think if the game does a tremendous job at offering two experiences that are sufficiently different, I'll give you a great, for instance, uh, um, two of them, actually, this was, uh, I had a friend that was, was very new to games and she wanted to, uh, to learn about some of these games I had. So this was the first game I played with her. And we played the family version. I said, okay, we're going to do this. And this is going to introduce you to some concepts of set collection, you know, um, varying pieces that do different things. Even though the pieces don't really do anything different. They're different shapes. It was a phenomenal gateway game. Uh, and for two players, it's almost like a almost a competitive puzzle in some ways. Um, and then I had another experience where I taught this to a group of um, my friend and I and two of her friends uh, who had never played anything besides Monopoly? Yeah, these these women these were uh, women in their 40s. They had never played anything besides Monopoly, standard you know Milton Bradley, Walmart style board games. And so we played the first round using the Family Game to get them up to speed. And they're like, "Okay, that's kind of cool. It's pretty looking. We like it." I said, "All right, we're going to play with the advanced rules," and they were able to get that right away by stepping from the Family Game up to the next version. So it, Steve did a great job in um, pr- presenting both a game that's accessible to families and then if you want to take it up a notch and, and play it with gamers or maybe kids that are a little bit older that's, that just want a little bit more of a challenge, it's all right in that box.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that. Uh, there's there's quite a lot of value there because you have those two modes of play. Uh, about the only thing that I would disagree with that you said is the phrase women in their 40s. I think what you meant to say was women in their 30s, I, correct? Uh, yes? they're,
1: they're not going to listen. It's okay. I'm safe. <laughs> <laughs>
0: it's always women in their 30s. Once once the 40 threshold has been passed, remember, Steve, it's always when you you are younger than me, it's women in their 30s, okay? That's going to get (laughs) you a lot farther, my friend, than women in their 40s. All right. okay. Now, that little (laughs) lesson aside, here endeth the lesson, okay? (laughs) Um, Yeah, the only thing that I would add, um, unless I'm totally mistaken, and if I am, I'll edit this out because I don't want to completely embarrass myself, but I don't think I am. Um, I I believe when you place, though, don't you have to be connected to the other pieces in some way, um, and you can't use diagonals for a connection? So that, uh, I just right. want to kind of clarify that you know that you can't just place anywhere. Um, you're right. You know, yeah, you, you, you have to be connected. Yeah,
1: I didn't. I didn't uh, probably elaborate on that as well as i should yes your your pieces have to it's be all connected. your fault yeah yes it's oh it totally is all my fault. fault well you know what yeah. i said you could <laughs> i said you could place tiles anywhere and and you can place them anywhere that you have a legal connection you can't just throw them around on the board. <laughs>
0: that's right. That's right. Well, that might have just made up a little bit for my bruised ego on the four colors in Biblios when there was actually five. So there well, we go. Well, right. It's only you and me, so I'm, I'm afraid to see who's going to blow it on the next game. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, the next one that we want to talk about a little bit here is the Institute of Magical Arts. And uh, I agree with you. This is uh, definitely a more thematic experience. Uh, this is a two-player only game. And it's funny you brought up Battle Line before, because in some ways this kind of reminds me a little bit of that as well, in that you have a central sort of array of cards, and uh, these cards are going to be uh, things that you are bidding on, okay? And the theme of the game is that there's this uh, Hogwarts-style school um, that we can't call hard- <laughs> Hogwarts for trademark <laughs> reasons. <laughs> it's the Warthogs. There are Exactly. Warthogs. I like that. Um, There are two... Now I've got the voice of Pumbaa in my head. There are... (laughs) There are two... When I was a young warthog... Okay. I got two (laughs) competing wizards. um, And they're trying to, for some reason, fight each other or uh, gain control of artifacts so that they can become the new headmaster. Um, So... Eh, You know, the theme there, again, you know, I'm not exactly sure why we're fighting about this. But, you know, it's all good. Um, But it's a beautifully produced game. The art is gorgeous. Um, And you have this uh, central row of cards. And basically what you're going to be doing on your turn is you're going to be rolling some dice. This is another clever use of dice in modern design. And uh, each player has, I believe, it's four dice. And you're going to roll those four dice. And then you have a hand of cards. And you're going to assign a card to each of those dies. And the value on the die matches one of the cards that's on offer. And so you, neither player knows what cards you're putting down, but we have the same hand of cards. And so therefore, you know what the cards are. You know, they're either going to be uh, taking these little discs, they're called stones, I don't know why, from the supply, or you're going to be putting stones, casting stones, he calls it. Uh, onto the cards that match the die value so you have this sort of limited supply of these stones every time you use them they're going to go back into sort of a general supply and then you're going to have to re-import them into your personal supply before you can use them again so there's a cycling of this that has to go on and you have to be very mindful of it um and so what you're trying to do is you're trying to put out these cards with the die value. So if I'm short of stones and I've rolled a five, my opponent might be thinking, oh, you know, he really wants this five card because it's a it's a great card that's going to allow you uh, at a later phase in the game to just roll a die and put a stone out. Um, you know, it's a crystal ball. You know, this is really cool. Um, you're kind of looking into the future. I'm trying to kind of connect that theme there, right? Um so, I think he 's going to go for that he 's going to cast some stones on that. well, actually, what I did is I, I, I played the card that lets me take stones because that value five die is really kind of handy for me i 'm going to be able to grab five stones so that I have an ample supply for you know that for the you know future of the game so There's this really nice kind of back and forth and cycling as you are trying to gain majorities in these cards that are on offer in the center between the two players. Um, There's also a very clever little card called the Portal and another uh, clever little card called the Ethereal Realm that we can talk a little bit about later. But uh, basically what the Portal does is wherever the Portal is, you can put stones on the Portal and then... After everyone has placed their stones, you can move them. So you can move those stones to a different card and perhaps swing a majority. Every card has uh, what I like to call a break point or a break value. And that's kind of the the value of stones that you have to have on the card in order to be eligible to claim it. But in true Dr. Finn fashion, it's not just a race to the first to get that number because not only do you have to hit that number but you have to exceed the influence of the other player uh, by a certain value and so it's not enough for me to just get four stones on the card I have to have four stones and two more than the other player so if you know you and I are fighting over this card back and forth and back and forth uh, it could be round after round that none of us can claim this card, even though we're really kind of fighting for it. Um, and, and there's actually a, a little rule in there uh, that says, if you ever get to a point where there's X number of stones, I think it's 20 on the card, you just, it's gone. Like you, you we fought over it too long and it, it is now, you know, broken or whatever. So that, that card's actually gone. So through clever manipulation of your dice and these cards that you put face down at first and then you reveal... You're going to be bidding on these cards, having this little tug of war, and you're going to be using that um, portal card to surprise your opponent. Um, and then there's a whole nother phase after you've assigned your your stones to the cards where you can use the power of cards. So certain cards that you've accumulated will have a one-shot effect when the moment you take them. Other cards are going to have lasting effects that you can use every round. But in another really interesting uh, good design choice... You have to pay, so you have to pay one of your stones from your personal supply to activate a card, which means you 're lessening you know what you have for the next round, and so you might have to start taking stones when you really want to cast stones um, based on the majorities that you see on the cards in front of you so there 's an awful lot going on in this game that 's really interesting this back and forth it 's very enjoyable, plays very quickly. Uh, And yet there's a lot of tension in the game, and there's a lot of room for surprise moves because of the powers of the cards and because of the portal. Um, And then finally you have this ethereal realm where you can uh, ascend one of your stones uh, from the portal to the ethereal realm, uh, but only one. And if people leave you alone, if your opponent leaves you alone, you can accumulate stones there and then turn them in for what are called charm cubes, which are really just straight victory points uh, and more importantly reroll cubes um, because everybody starts with three of them but as you go through the game you're going to be using those you're going to be burning them and so you might want to go to the ethereal realm to reload yourself on those reroll cubes so there's a lot of interesting choices in this game and I kind of found it to be um, really strong as a two-player game and really kind of meaty uh, despite the fact that, uh, you know, the theme is a little tenuous. Um, the, again, the mechanics of the game are super sound and really engaging and offer a lot of hard choices. So uh, that's kind of been my experience with this game. Um, have you had a chance to play this one? And if so, what's been your impressions?
1: Yeah, I've, I've got a, a handful of plays in it. I want to say four or five. I'm not even sure. Uh, it's at least four. This is easily the, the heaviest game that uh, Steve's done yet um i find this one to be it's thinky it's really thinky despite the use of dice usually uh any game where you're rolling four six-siders per side you, you're thinking you're gonna get a lot of random happening you don't in this game you it, sure you'll get you'll get things come up because of the dice but uh yeah are we going to talk about capo di capi today
0: yeah, we can talk about that too. Yeah, okay. Uh, that's another well, game uh, of his that uh, I've played and, and had some experience with, and, and that's a whole another interesting discussion. So, yeah, um, if you want to draw a parallel, go go right ahead. Um, but, yeah, you know, the,
1: this is this is the uh, the significantly more heavyweight version of that game. Um, it's it's different. They're they're not the same game, but they came out almost in succession, I think. And this game to me feels like. Uh, like the real gamers version of a of a two-player dice game that steve wanted to get out capo de capi is a, a a lighter game moves much faster i don't know how long this game is uh institute of magical arts is taking you jeff but games of this are taking me 45 minutes
0: uh we're usually hitting it at 30 so okay. I'm, I'm wondering if i just stink at it
1: <laughs> well uh, i don't know um you know the the person I'm playing with these with is is newer to games. I'm assuming you're probably playing this with your wife, who's a, an established gamer, or your friends. I'm playing this with somebody that's that's kind of new to the board game hobby. So there's a little bit of learning curve because this one's thinky. That that rule about the uh, not just having the number of stones, but the the number that you have to surpass the other player by, man, that's that's brilliance. That's really brilliance because it creates fighting over cards i don't know if you've had any where you've gotten up to 20 on there but we had one card that we had uh i lost with 14 and it was for a character card it was for a nothing character card (laughs) i don't i we got like we engaged in a battle of pride where neither one of us was willing to let it go so we're just like all right we're fighting tooth and nail for a card that right now is worth one point (laughs) so uh i i didn't think that um this one because of the way you can see and again you know we're kind of doing a majority on here this is uh it's almost dudes on a map right you're you're almost putting you're putting your stones on each of the cards trying to win that card um it is real thinky and and out trying to outthink the other person at the same time you know can i i'm going to tell you about all right this, this annoys me to no end, so I'm going to try to... And I, I've, I emailed Steve about this because I, I, this just boggled my mind. Maybe you feel different than me. There, there's a, a rule in the game. After both players have rolled their dice, you can choose to re-roll as many times as you want. As long as you have re-roll cubes, you can choose to keep using those, or you can trade in your charm cubes for more re-roll cubes and keep re-rolling. Right? There's no order to the way that players choose whether they want to re-roll or not. And this drives me insane.
0: That's an interesting point. I never saw that problem coming, but now that you say it, I can see it. Um, let, let me give you, a for it,
1: example, if I, if yeah, I, yeah, yeah, go,
0: yeah, yeah, just so it, people understand what you're talking about here. Yeah, go for it.
1: You and I are playing. We both roll our dice. I can see that that which you've got isn't great, but I think you can make it work knowing, you know, I can see how many stones you already have. So I know that you're going to want to take some and I I can look at what you've got and say like, okay, he can make this work. Really. There's no bad die roll in this game. I guess is one of the best ways to put it. There's nothing in this game that's going to leave you completely in a lurch. Um, So I say, okay, he can make that work. I can make mine work, but maybe I want to, I want to just see if I can get something better. So I want to reroll a couple of my dice. But what if Jeff's going to re-roll his dice? Well, I'm not touching mine until Jeff touches his. And Jeff's sitting there saying, well, if he's keeping this, I'm keeping this. And then you kind of look at each other awkwardly going like, you want to re-roll? Well, I don't know. You want to re-roll? Well, I don't know. So there's no there's no dictated, okay, the player with the most points has to choose to re-roll first. Or the player with the most power stones, whatever the the tiebreaker would be on that. There's nothing to dictate who chooses to re-roll first. And so I emailed Steve because to me in a game that was so very thinky and so calculated, this just felt really, really misplaced to me. And I, I emailed him and I said, what is up with that? Like, did you, did you bail on like, I can't make this work. So I'm just bailing on it. And you guys do whatever. Uh, his answer was that he liked the game of chicken aspect to it, that he liked the, who's going to crack first. So he went with that because he felt like it worked really good. I, I, it works fine, but I can't help but thinking in a game that feels as cerebral as this one does for a dice roller, that some sort of structure on that would not serve the
0: game better. It's an interesting point, um, and, and there's tons of ways to house rule that. I mean, you just outlined two of them, you know, whoever has the most power stones or whoever has the most points. You know, I, I think that would work. I think uh, fundamentally, Steve because of an earlier comment you made, which is that there's really no bad rolls for the most part in this game, I think that because I know that I almost always have the ability to move stones either in that round or in later rounds, okay, through the use of cards that I've accumulated that might allow me to do that, through the use of the portal. I've never actually re-rolled... My initial roll, except once, I'm really? always burning my rerolls on my attack cards, you know, or or the card that says, "Hey, roll a die and put a a a disc out at that number," and if I can just get one more stinking disc uh, on this card, that's going to give me the majority plus. Uh, the difference that I need, and so I'm gonna roll the die and see if I get lucky. I got a one in six chance, you know. Um, and oh, I didn't get it, so I'll use my reroll cube. Or perhaps I'm looking to prevent you from getting a card, so I use. Um, I, I don't know if it's the wand card. I'm trying to remember which one of the cards. You roll two dice, and you can remove a cue uh, I'm sorry, a stone of an opponent's from one of those two numbers that you rolled. And right. so I desperately need to get one of your stones off a of five. So I roll, and I roll a two and a six i'm like darn it so then i you know uh throw in a re-roll cube and i roll a two and a six <laughs> which has happened to me i don't know how many times um so i've always been burning my re-roll cubes there i've never really messed much with my initial rolls so it's an interesting it just hasn't come up as an issue for me but i can see very clearly what you're describing, that that could be an issue. Uh, however, apparently, you know, the designer feels that that's kind of a neat little part of the the chicken aspect of the game. I just don't know at what point do you say, okay, we're done with this phase. Like, yeah, is there like a countdown? Is it like three, two, one, done? You know, I mean, how how do you gauge that? Like, how do you determine, you know, uh, or you just sit there, as you said, and stare at each other? Um until somebody decides that they're going to re-roll, so that that is an interesting uh, a point that you bring up. It's one that I haven't experienced yet, but I can clearly see it now. Thank you very much. Now I'm going to be all you know.
1: <laughs> I broke it. For you. <laughs> well, you know, I think I think one of the things is with with the re-rolling is you know you don't have to re-roll all the dice. You can pick the ones you want to re-roll. So maybe I'm making this out to be worse than it is, but it 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 stuck with me. Like the first time I played it, I'm like I don't know that just doesn't feel right for a game that's. Otherwise, very deep to have almost an arbitrary solution point on something that's shaping your turn. But then again, you know, like I said, there's there's no bad. You're right. There's no bad dice rolls in this game. There's no there's no roll that you're going to get that's terrible. Um, if you roll under a six, like you have all ones and a two, um, you get to re-roll again for free anyway. So you know you don't have to burn a re-roll cube on that, which is is good. That's probably about the only real bad roll you could have. And I guess the other point of this is if you're, if you're playing this game correctly and you're getting the things that allow you to manipulate numbers and things like that, then I, I suppose it doesn't matter. So maybe I just contradicted my own point. Um, but I, that said, you and I have already d- very different experiences with this in the, um, in the amount of times we've played it. I can tell you personally that I have not quite grasped how to play this game effectively yet. I understand the rules. Uh, I know I'm playing it correctly rules-wise. This is easily... This might be Steve's best design in terms of um, him starting to get to something a little bit chunkier Um, because I have not remotely figured out how to play this game well. Have have you... Are you experiencing that or, or are you feeling like you really understand it? Because for me, I feel like I'm doing things fine, but I... There's a... There's a balancing point to how hard you go after certain cards and when to back off. And I think the trick is to to win as close to the majority as possible so that you're not wasting any stones. And if you're going to lose something, just lose it outright and don't even be close. But that's really hard to master. And I think that's that's what I'm, I'm working on. Now, I think that's a positive for the game. And I, I, I want to hear your take on that. But I think that's a positive for the game that... I've played it a handful of times and I'm still not playing it in a way that I think is is good.
0: I would agree with uh, the fact that there's definitely a lot of things to consider here and I would agree that it's not immediately apparent Now I'm not going to claim that I have any super duper handle on the game, but I have seen a few different paths um, that I think players have to choose from there's there's a there's a few basic, avenues that you can take to try to win one of them is the ethereal realm okay yep because every charm cube that you accumulate is worth a victory point so you can conceivably make that your core engine in this game you are just going to ride that ethereal realm and force the other player to try to stop you and every time that the other player tries to stop you because the way the, eth- the ethereal realm works is if i have a stone on the ethereal realm And I have not turned it in. And my opponent chooses to move from the portal to the ethereal realm. Um, They can only move one stone, even if they had two or three on there. They can only move one. And their one does not stay on the card. It simply cancels mine. And so it it makes mine go away. And so, you know, you can get into this, this tug of war... Um, with just the Ethereal Realm card, but in my experience, a lot of people kind of ignore it. They they don't spend a lot of time worrying about it unless they're trying to get more reroll cubes. So I've seen uh, I've played games where the Ethereal Realm has been a focus of mine, and I've done fine. Um, I've seen games where people focus on the character cards because, as you mentioned, character cards are kind of worthless, but they're not. They're the set collection way to win. So right. if you, uh, the you know, the first character card that you gain, you get one point for. The second one, you're going to get two points. The third one, you're going to get three. So, right. uh, you know, you can I, I've seen people really try to go for the character card kind of win, where you're going to try to accumulate those, and that's going to be kind of your primary engine. Now, don't get me wrong you can't you can't just run one thing here. You're going to have to do a few things. But, you know, that is an area of focus. And then finally, there's what I call like the, uh, um, uh, the stone manipulation strategy, which is you're going for the cards that are going to allow you to manipulate your stones on the cards so that you can swing a surprise majority and take another one, or so that you can uh, bail and move stones that are in a losing fight to somewhere else that's going to be advantageous for you later. Because every card that you acquire is also worth points. So, uh, a varying values. I'd say between 1 and 3 I think. Oh no, no, Lord, there's uh, like a 6 point card zero, out there. A, yeah, 0 and yeah, 7. Yeah.
1: There's there's the uh, the broken wand that's worth nothing, but if you collect both yes. halves, it's worth 7. And yeah. I, think the, I think there's one that's outright worth
0: 6. Right, that's the one I was thinking of. But the broken wand is 7. Yeah, you're right. If you get both broken wands, you get 7 points. So That's such a cool clearly, idea. I, lo- I love that card. I'm sorry
1: to interrupt you. I love the fact that when that card's out there and someone has half of it uh, when the other half comes out, man, does it drive the game right that direction because you don't want the other person to get it. You don't really want it because it's worth nothing, but they just can't have it because it's worth right, seven right. points to them. It's right. brilliant.
0: It is. It is. And, and, and the other thing that we haven't mentioned here is that despite all of my talking here about different kind of base strategies, you don't know what cards are going to come out. You're, you're, you're not going to see all the cards. No, So, you know, that first broken wand might come out and there's an enormous fight over it as people are like, oh, you know, this is, I mean, because you only have to get 20 points to win the game. And so people might be like, oh, man, if I get this, you know, that can get me seven points. And that's that's almost halfway to victory, you know?
1: Right. Because you start um, with so three. That, is, that does put you halfway to victory if you get
0: both. Exactly. Adds. So it's this enormous fight for this card. And then you may never see the other one. And so you spent a lot of time in the game trying to accumulate something that ultimately had no value. Now that's going to be a turnoff for some people, but for me, much like we described in uh, Biblios, Scripts, and Scribes, I'm I'm fine with that. You know, I like that. That's that kind of risk reward. What What am I willing to invest in this right. in the hopes that it comes up later and I'm in a position where I can grab it? You know, so. I, I would definitely agree with you that there's there's more things going on in this game than than uh, than would appear at first. But you know, one of the other things that I would say, Steve, is is don't forget that it's a dice game, and sometimes you know there is an inherent amount of luck and variability, no matter what the systems are in the game that allow you to manipulate the dice. There's right. an inherent amount of luck and and variability that's going to be in a game like that. So, you know, I, I'm willing to accept that. You know, I'm kind of used to that. So, you know, that's that's definitely something, you know, to consider as well, maybe food for thought. So that would well, be my impressions thus far about those strategies.
1: I, I'm a huge dice game fan. And so I I love the random nature of, of rolling a fistful of dice. I mean, heck, you could give me a fistful of D20s and just leave me alone for a few hours. And I'm sure I'll come up with some sort of game to amuse myself with just because I love rolling dice. Um, I, I, like you said, though, that, that inherent amount of, of luck and randomness, that's never a turnoff in games like this for me. Uh, to contrast, I, I once played D I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure of playing D where you talk about German politics and square tomatoes and things like that. It's, it's great. Drip, drip, sarcasm, drip, drip. And, uh, so we, we spent like six hours playing this game. And uh, the final scores, I'll never forget it. I finished fourth, like, way back, and my, my other friend was way back there with me. But the guys that 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 were at the, the lead, it was 295 to 294 to 294. If you've ever played Mocker, there's a six-sided die roll in that game every turn for points. So literally, we could have avoided six hours of our lives, been doing anything else, rolled a six-sided die, and that guy could have still won. But in a game like this, where you're playing for half an hour... And it's a a driving mechanism, not just an add-on. It's a beautiful thing.
0: Right, right. No, I would agree. And, uh, you know, again, um, it's just, you know, there's going to be some personal taste involved. But at the same time, you know, it's definitely going to be an interesting game experience for a two-player game. As you said, it's it's quite meaty. So um, while we're talking about, you know, Dr. Finn Dice games, because, I mean, we've got Dice here in... Biblios uh, scripts and scribes. We've got dice in this game. Uh, we also have dice in Capo De Capi. So, uh, by way of wrapping this up, um, would you like to tell us a little bit about Capo DiCapi, Capi, uh, how that game works, and and what your impressions are of that?
1: Sure. Um, Capo De Capi is a another two-player heads-up, dice-driven game. Very different in how it actually functions than in the Institute of Magical Arts. Um, Capo De Capi has seven territories uh, between the players and the territories are either a black colored die territory or a white colored die territory. And the game comes with a black six sider and a white six sider. So on your turn, you're rolling the dice. And if you get a number that's one, two or three on one of the dice, um, and this is where this game gets a little hard to explain because there are a ton of different dice combinations that do different things. But, The goal is when you get a one, two, or three on one of the dice, uh, regardless of which color, you get to put an influence token on that area. And it's very much a push-your-luck game. You can only put one token on each area per turn. So if you roll a combination that would have you putting a second token on that area, you would bust out and and lose your progress for the turn. Um, In in typical Steve Finn fashion, there's a lot of ways to um, modify the dice, you uh you get the mayor tokens which allow you to reroll things um or move stuff around on the board there's a bunch of different um special features that you get with those mayor tokens the long and short of it is you're trying to get those influence tokens on the on the cards and uh, i said that the use of the two six sided dice of different colors is i think it's brilliant um this is a much faster game than institute of magical arts probably 15 minutes um you know, nice nice components, but nothing on the on the order of Institute of Magical Arts. This is a, a very much more Spartan sort of game.
0: Yeah, you know, it's an interesting game for sure. And it's a game that when I first played it, I really didn't care for it, to be honest with you. Um, I just kind of felt like, oh, my God, you know, all I'm doing is rolling the dice and looking at this chart and figuring out what that die result is telling me to do. You know, uh, this isn't very fun. Um, but the whole game for me, Steve, resides in those mayor chips. Very because much so. Because the mayor chips are going to allow you, There's this as you bribe and kind of influence the mayor's office, you're going to gain these little chips, these little tokens that have a picture of the mayor on them. And you're going to be able to use those chips to move influence, um, to manipulate influence, to add value. There's all these different things that you can do with these mayor chips. And that really changed the game for me. Like once I really understood that those were the real currency of this game, then the whole game opened up for me and it became a much more interesting and enjoyable experience, you know. So it just kind of goes to prove that sometimes, you know, your first kind of read through uh, and, and I have to say, in all fairness, I didn't love the rule book in, in Capo di Capi either. I thought it was a little difficult to wrap your mind around, you know. If you're teaching someone Capo Di capi, it's a very simple game. If you're trying to kind of grok it from reading through the rules yourself, it can get a little bit thinky. Uh, It can get a little confusing because, you know, there's all of these terms. You know, you're putting things on cards or next to cards or... Um, you know, what you can do to move things and how do those red kind of value cubes, um, which is going to determine the value of the card. Every card that you win the majority in at the end of the game is worth a point. But every red value cube that's on that card is an additional point. And any of the value cubes, I believe, Steve, that you've accumulated personally through influencing the mayor are also worth a point. So there's, there's all of this that you have to think about. And so, you know, I found that once I learned the game and I was able to really teach it, to people and I understood the value of those mayor chips the whole game changed for me and it became something that was really enjoyable but I I do have to admit that I struggled with the rule book on this one this was not one that I was able to easily just sit down and read and understand and play and I almost kind of thought it was a little fiddly you know there, there it was it was a little fiddly for what it was until I kind of fully grasped the systems. And then once I grasped the systems, then I felt much better about the game, and I understood the flow of it much more uh, than I did initially. Did you have an initial problem with the learning curve on that, or was that just me?
1: Uh, no, I actually didn't. I, I actually thought the rulebook was really solid. Um, I thought the the best part of the rulebook was the player aid that came with it, because the variety of dice combinations, and that they all do different things, is, right. it, it, Yeah, it, it's a little... I will agree with you that i I felt that it was a little clunky at first um, we I didn't have a hard time learning the rules, but I did feel that mm, there's there's clunk in this machine, so we talked about in in Biblios how the game rules um, disappear into the gameplay. The game rules in this one will never disappear disappear it's no, it's no, not yeah. as elegant a system um, I think it's it's due to the way that he's using the dice um you know you would you talk about the rule book I'm a stickler for good rules and and Steve's usually really good about having a good rule book um the rule about getting the 1 point per influence cube that you get um when you're um extorting the mayor th- those cubes that you get are worth a point it doesn't say that anywhere in the rule book and Steve's real good about being on board game geek um and answering those questions, but when I do my own review of that one, which is coming at some point, I mean, I got to take a good chunk out for that because that's a really important rule to not have in the rule book. Um, th- this game, I didn't realize how hard it was to uh, explain and summarize till you literally just asked me to do it. Um, when I taught this game the first time, it was it was easy enough to work my way through, um, having read the rules, and I kind of played half a game by myself just to see. But the first time we played it. We kind of looked at each other and said, like, what am I going to do with all these mayor tokens? I'm not, I'm not using them. We were basically <laughs> not understanding right. how to play. And I thought to yeah, myself... We ran, we, out of start-
0: them. we ran out of them, Steve, all the time. We're like, I guess I just don't take a mayor chip because there's none left in the supply. <laughs> we well, you were know like there's a, them. I-
1: <laughs> there's a cap of seven on them, I think.
0: Right, right. But um, it, very,
1: it, it was very easy early on to go, okay, you don't need these. But when you start realizing... I made it a point, and I think it was our third game. We, we liked it fine, but we weren't blown away by it. I made it a point of, I'm going to start using these. They're here for a reason. He's given me these. It's, it's something that you get from rolling a seven most of the time, which is the most common die roll you know, for two six-siders. So I'm like, there's got to be a reason he's lubricating the game with these mayor chips. What am I going to do with them? So I just made it a point of, I'm going to use these constantly. I'm just going to do whatever. I'm going to see how it works. And all of a sudden, the game popped. And it went, oh, oh, that's how you do it. Because you're, unlike uh, Institute of Magical Arts, where you have four dice and you have a wider variety of things you can do with them, you roll the dice and you get the thing here. Whatever the thing is, you get the thing. And so you have to massage the die roll by being able to re-roll it or by forcing your opponent to re-roll, or by moving your tokens that are on your side of the board that haven't been placed on the board yet so that you can place an extra token, you're massaging the game state constantly with these things. And that's why they're on that roll of seven so that you can keep getting more of these. Um, One of the coolest things, though, I think, about these mayor tokens is anytime you use a mayor token, you have to roll the dice again, which is cool. Because he's, he's letting you break the rules and letting you massage game state to get to an advantageous position. But you have to weigh that with, okay, well, if I don't have any mayor tokens left, or even if I do, I have to roll again. Well, if I roll again and I roll doubles and I bust out, I can roll again with using you know, a mayor chip, but I have to roll again. So you, it's he adds the pressure luck there. You can use these things for that gigantic benefit, but there's a potentially a cost to it.
0: Absolutely. Especially when you get yeah.
1: low in the mayor chips. And if you don't have any mayor chips, if you just used your last one for something that was really important to you and you have to roll again, oh, man, that's brutal. Because your, your turn, you may have just done everything you want to do that turn and you have to roll one more time and you're on that precipice. It's, it's really uh, a brilliant rule to neutralize how effective those are. They're still worth the chance. They're always worth the chance. But it, boy, does it put a, a toll on that that you might have to pay.
0: Yeah, it makes it quite a lot of fun, and as uh, uh you know, I, I think it's really interesting. You know, you use the term lubricate, um, and I really do feel like this game is, you know, we we use the engine analogy before. You know, it, it's it's very kind of clunky. It makes a lot of noise. There's all these this chart that you have to consult, and you're like, uh eh. But then once you start using the, those mayor chips, everything quiets down, you know, and you start to see. Um, you know all of the possibilities it's like oh okay so it doesn't really matter that my die says I have to put an influence 3 on white 2 uh, card I can actually use a mayor chip and move that to another exactly. card that I don't already have a chip on and I really wanted it to go to the black uh, 1 card anyway so this is awesome so I'm getting 3 influence but I'm getting to shift it over there and that's really going to put the screws on them and uh, you know by the way uh, you know that that's a value 1 and so you know uh, maybe I'll have a better luck with my reroll because now I could afford to roll this number again and so you really start to think about it and it is it, it's it's a really interesting game and and it, it smooths everything out it, it lubricates the game and, and makes it less noisy and clunky so that you you really start to to just kind of uh, uh, have fun with it so uh, this is a game that I think definitely requires a few plays you know you you kind of felt that you know Institute of the magical arts required that and I would say the same thing about Capo di Capi. I mean, th- this is a game that you're going to need to take a few plays to really kind of get the feel and don't forget to use some mayor chips. I-, I 100% agree with you on that. So... Well, thank you for uh, explaining uh, and, and going over uh, Capo DiCapi briefly there with us as well. I mean, uh, you know, to kind of sum up and finish our time here together uh, today, Steve, you know, uh, Dr. Finn has produced a lot of really intriguing games, and he's produced intriguing games for small numbers of players, which I really appreciate. Um, you know, I, I, I enjoy the kind of two-player games and the three-player. Uh, I kind of agree. Biblios with three players. Boy, I love that game. Um, yep. And, and he's got a very unique style and feel, um, the closest, you know, being uh, a Reiner Canizia. But still, his games are kind of his own. And I think uh, as a designer, he has kind of flown under the radar a little bit. And I think Tremendous initially thing. that was because of printing and distribution. Um, but now, you know, he seems to be uh, getting... The games kind of out more and more um, larger print runs, and I, I I predict good things for for Steve Finn in the future because there there really haven't been any games that he's produced that I've just kind of went ah oh, you know I, I don't care for this at all this is this is junky you know I mean and I can't say that about Reiner Knizia there's been games of his I've played and I'm like what is this you know <laughs> I know I um, know it's, it's it's
1: amazing that and, a man of such caliber can put out such junk sometimes.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, so I, I think that, uh, you know, I'm glad we took the time and, and uh, I'm glad that uh, you agreed to join me today to talk about uh, not only Scripps and Scribes, but other great games from uh, uh, Steve Finn and, uh, you know, his company. So, uh, you know, Steve, I want to say thanks for uh, agreeing to be on the show today. It's been fun to listen to you and, and talk with you and, and hear your thoughts about these games.
1: Thank you so much for uh, inviting me on here to talk. You, you and I have... Uh have never had a problem getting enough words out. So I, we, we had planned to talk for an hour, and we're at 92 minutes right now. So <laughs> it's never a problem for you and I to, to get plenty out there. So thank you for the opportunity. Can I, can I plug my blog?
0: Absolutely, you can. Yeah, yeah. And, and you can also uh, talk uh, for a minute if you'd like about, uh, you know, you had said you were thinking about maybe trying to do a little bit of podcasting yourself. So, um, you know, what can you tell us about your, your blog, and what can you tell us about your future plans?
1: Uh, Well, the the blog is at blog.cardboardinsanity.com. So far, uh, I'm sticking to written reviews. That's what I started out doing. And I think I've done something like uh, 150 on Board Game Geek in the seven or eight years I've been part of that community. So I've got, I think I'm up to 10 or 12 on my blog now, and I'm starting to do that again full force, took some time off from it. Uh, I really have wanted to get into podcasting so um, i'm especially grateful for this opportunity to do this with you um it's given me a feel for for what's required and and uh, a wonderful voice to learn from so thank you for being a good example of, of how these things <laughs> well, should be done it's, it always pays to uh to patronize the host kids uh, so. <laughs> well thank you
0: <laughs> <laughs> but uh, consider yourself accomplished yeah very i appreciate that it's it's nice to hear you say because uh uh, you know, I've always enjoyed reading your reviews and uh, we've always had a lot of fun talking games together. And so I think eventually the move to that medium for you is going to bear fruit because while I, I appreciate the the analysis that you bring to your written reviews, um, your kind of breadth of knowledge and, and the way you express yourself, I think, really lends itself to an audio format. So uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing what you uh, what you have in the future and, the, and, and what you're going to bring to the table.
1: Thank you, my friend. I appreciate that. I'm, I'm really looking forward to doing it. I can tell you that uh, I'm attending ConCon Con next week, and I'm going to get a chance to hang out with you there and play some games. Um, and I'm actually going to be doing an interview with Steve Finn, so I'm kind of excited to maybe ask him some follow-ups to the things that we talked about here and uh, find about about what he's got coming out in the future. I know he has Biblios Dice coming out, um, the Kickstarter for that wrapped up. A little while ago, I want to say those are on target for June delivery. I may, I may be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure it's sometime in the summer. Um, that is a, a rework of his scripts and scribes dice that he had done a while back. Um, he's mm-hmm. pretty excited mm-hmm. about this, so I'm looking forward to seeing what he's got. And I'm sure he's got more things in the pipeline, so... I'm I'm figuring my first podcast is going to be an interview with him, and I might uh, tack on my own review of the Institute for Magical Arts on that. I don't have a um a podcast feed yet. Obviously, I have to get something submitted to iTunes before they can make that happen. But it'll be posted on my blog, and uh, you can also follow me on Twitter if you're into the Twitter sphere. It's at Cardboard Insane, and I post all kinds of delightful game related topics on there. <laughs>
0: Well, that's great. Well, thank you, because uh, I'll be sure to try and find you there, because uh, I've been posting a lot on Twitter as well. And so, uh, yeah, that's a great way to find you. So it's Cardboard Insane, not Insanity, right?
1: Yeah, Cardboard Insane. Cardboard Insanity was taken by somebody. I'm going to have to find them and have a serious talk.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, you know, Steve, thanks again for being on the show tonight and, uh, uh, you know, talking with us about these great games. Uh, I really appreciate it.
1: My absolute pleasure, my friend. Thank you so much for the invite. And hopefully we can do it again soon.
0: Future Jeff here. Um, I know Eric Summerer does that all the time, so I thought I'd give it a shot. Uh, so future Jeff here. Uh, I just wanted to kind of let people know out there that uh, after I recorded this episode, I did get to meet Steve, uh, both Steves actually, Dr. Finn and uh, Steve Oxenic uh, at ConCon and had the pleasure of trying out Steve Finn's new game, which is called Cosmic Run. Uh, this is a game that he and his son apparently worked on. Uh, so kind of like the Engelsteins here, we, we now have uh, uh, The Finn, who are working on some game design together and this is a uh, really clever race kind of game. Uh, there are different planets and it is a dice game. Uh, once again, Dr. Finn's working with dice and you're using dice to kind of try to uh, move to kind of colonize these planets uh, and reach these planets uh, in this distant future where humanity is, you know, going out to the stars and trying to find new places to kind of uh, go and live and whatnot. But, uh, but there are disasters that can strike the planets and these forms of these, you know, uh, comet or meteor strikes that can hit the planets and so you're trying to kind of get up these sort of planetary tracks, kind of trying to land, I guess if you want to say, or or to reach the planet before the other players uh, which is going to score you some victory points. There are cards uh, that you can uh, acquire during the course of the game that are going to give you some abilities and ways to manipulate the dice as you would expect. And, uh, you know, there's also just some really neat kind of interaction in the game uh, as you jockey for position with the other players uh, trying to uh, complete your cosmic run uh, and be there first which is going to garner you the most points um, you know depending on the planets that you're going to and the planets are increasingly difficult to get to uh, as you move along Um, so the further out you go the harder it is to kind of reach those areas those planets you need different die combinations to reach different kind of uh, a planet so it's a, a light game but one that's a lot of fun definitely in his kind of family game category and a really smooth gameplay with interesting decisions to make with dice you know once again here we go right um a game that is is a, a simple rule set but provides plenty of interesting decisions really enjoyed that uh it's quite a lot of fun and uh, i mentioned it because as of the posting of this show uh dr finn is actually going to to be launching his kickstarter i believe on monday so uh you know today i'm sitting here and and doing final production editing on the 22nd of march i believe on the 23rd or 24th uh his project goes live so if you like dr finn's games if you've been intrigued by what you've heard here uh, then definitely go and check out his kickstarter for cosmic run Now it's time for a new game review. Join us for a quick look here on The Long View. So today here on The Long View, we're going to be taking a look at two new games uh, from Asthma Day. Uh, these are games that were uh, sent to me for review. Uh, the first one we're going to take a look at is Deus. Uh, this is by uh, designer Sebastian uh, Dujardin. Um, with uh, art uh, by uh, Mava de Silva, Christine Duchamp, uh, Paul Lafond, and Ian Paravel. Uh, I hope I'm saying those names correctly. Um, this is a game that was released in 2014. Uh, it plays from two to four players uh, and it's made kind of a, a bit of a splash uh, since its original release and so it was one that uh, when, when I you know heard I might have the opportunity to take a look at it, I was very eager to try it. Uh, this is one that uh, a lot of reviewers have talked very highly of and uh, it was something that uh, I definitely wanted to check out because it was uh, supposed to be kind of a tableau building civilization kind of game and These are two things that are right up my alley. So before we go any further, let's talk a little bit about how the game is actually played. Now, Deus is a kind of a civilization-building game, uh, but it's kind of very generic. Um, Every civilization, uh, each player uh, representing a civilization, has a color that uh, has been assigned to them. And a player mat, which is kind of like a a thin strip. It's like a thin board uh, that kind of goes uh, horizontally. And that board is going to kind of uh, give you sort of a place where you can kind of begin to build your tableau of cards. And the cards come in different colors. So, for example, there are blue cards, which are kind of like maritime cards. There are red cards, which are kind of like military cards. They're going to be like your legions. Uh, There are cards that kind of represent your universities, your learning, okay, things of that nature. There are sort of trading houses and industries, production buildings. There's all kinds of different buildings, and each of them is kind of color-coded. Like a lot of these games, uh, they're going to cost resources in order for you to build them. and The basic resources in the game are stone and wood and wheat and clay okay so you know kind of a a basic sort of a, a civilization game where you're going to be gathering resources in order to build buildings and those buildings are going to produce some kind of an effect for you either gathering more resources or gaining you victory points or giving you something that you can do on the board or you know perhaps giving you an advantage in the game so all of this is kind of standard uh, thus far. You know, there's, there's not a whole lot here that is kind of uh, uh, new or hasn't been tried or, you know, or done before. Uh, the board itself is actually a modular design. There are these nice kind of tiles. Some people have kind of, uh, uh, you know, said they don't care for the art. They think it's, you know, it doesn't look right or something. But I kind of find that they're very uh, nice, uh, that they're, they're very readable. Um, the uh, tiles are divided up into terrains, so you kind of have like swamp regions and mountain regions and field regions and forest regions and then there will be these kind of barbarian settlements and we'll talk a little bit about more uh, a little bit about them later but uh, you know I think the boards are very serviceable and they're very clear which I kind of appreciate they're very easy to read so you're going to build the kind of world based on the number of players is going to tell you how many of these tiles you're going to use and they're kind of they're very large tiles kind of almost in a star or snowflake kind of a shape, um, but with you know all rounded kind of corners. And so you fit them together nicely, and depending on how you fit them together, it's going to um, kind of produce different values of these barbarian settlements. The barbarian settlements are regions that the players are going to be able to kind of go and take over, and depending on the number of regions that are surrounding the barbarian settlements is going to determine how many kind of victory points are going to be worth or how many are up for grabs there for players who can come and attack those settlements and take them over and sort of pacify them, if you want to think of it that that way, So a barbarian settlement kind of near the edge of the board might only be surrounded by three regions, so it's only going to be worth three points. One that's kind of surrounded in the middle of the board, however, it, you know, could be worth up to six points. So there's, there's a, a, a nice variety there, and that's going to give you some strategic opportunities when you're sort of planning for how you want to uh, begin the game. In addition, uh, all of the players uh, have their own little individual pieces, and these pieces come in different shapes and sizes depending on what they are. So the legions look like little soldiers, and the production buildings look like the cities from Catan. And... Uh, the, uh, you know the, the other kind of buildings are like workshops and whatnot are kind of like the little house uh, buildings and so uh, the, the ships are these you know nice little wooden kind of galleys so there 's different kind of pieces that are going to represent the different types of buildings that you can create during the game every time you make a building you 're going to be putting a piece out onto the board. And one of the interesting things about the game, a nice little twist, is that you can't build a building unless you, meaning you can't play a card out of your hand as a building uh, in your kind of uh, kingdom without having a corresponding piece that's available to be put out. And so that kind of forces you to spend some time Um, gathering new wood pieces from your sort of general supply to your personal supply on your board. So you might be ready, you might have the resources to build a production building in a swamp uh, that's going to produce some nice clay for you, which is something you really need because you have a maritime card, a harbor that you had built where you can trade clay and get victory points. So there's all these kind of combo opportunities, which is is very standard and kind of fun in these sort of games. But if I don't have the production building piece to put out, I can't build it until I take a turn to then build that so one of the the neat things about the game is the rule set is really quite simple because on your turn you are either going to be playing a card out of your hand paying the cost for it and placing a piece onto the board or you're going to be doing what's called making an offering to the gods and when you make an offering you're going to be discarding cards from your hand you can discard as many as you want up to your hand limit um, which is five cards however Uh, The card that you discard on top, the color of that card, determines the type of offering. So, for example, if I discard three cards and the top one is a blue card, I'm making a sort of maritime offering. And what that's going to allow me to do is gain money and in addition, I'm going to get to take a new galley from my general supply and put it on my board so it's ready to go out. So the next time I want to build a port or a harbor or something of that nature, I've got the piece that I can put out on the board so that I can make the building. Uh, by the same token, if I, you know, I'm going to make a sort of a uh, an offering to uh, the production building god, <laughs> whatever that might be, um, if the top card is a production building card, then... Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to be able to gain goods. I'm going to gain resources for all of the cards that I discarded. And since the top one was that kind of um, production building color, I'm going to be able to take a new production building from my general supply and put it on my board. So this is kind of how you repopulate your board. Uh, the offering to the red god is interesting, the, the sort of god of war, if you want to think of it that way, because he is uh, going to allow you to take as many different uh, pieces as you want of Any of the types and put them onto your board equal to the number of cards you discarded. So there's all of these different offerings that you can make. There are offerings you can make for straight victory points. There are offerings you can make to get more cards into your hands so you can see more options and have more things you can do. So there's a lot of interesting things that you can do. It's not just passing a turn to get more pieces. It's often very advantageous for you uh, to be able to make these offerings because you're going to get another benefit as well, not just the new piece. So that's really kind of neat. Really simple rule set. Very easy to see. So you're either building a building and putting a piece out on the board. When you put a piece out on the board, it has to be connected to a piece that you had already placed on the board, unless you have been completely cut off and encircled by your opponents, because there's no direct fighting in this game. You can fight barbarians, for example, but you can't fight other uh, players, Uh, and if they have a piece in a forest region, for example, you can't go in there and take it from them, or you can't put one of your buildings in that forest region, Once it's been claimed by one civilization, it is theirs. So there's not a lot of direct conflict in the game. There's a lot of blocking and there's a lot of cutting off kind of a thing. If you ever do uh, become completely cut off, you can pay a little bit of a a penalty and you can start again from an edge of the board and start building in a different kind of region where you'll then have to chain your buildings together. And I've seen players do that. Uh, and have it really work out well for them. So it's not always a disadvantage, uh, you know, to have to do that. However, uh, you know, the game is also driven uh, not only by these two options that you have, but the game is also driven by these temple cards. Now, temple cards are the one type of cards that I haven't talked about. They're purple. And temple cards are important for two reasons. Number one, if a purple card is on top of an offering that you make, it can count as any color you want. So let's say I really need to get a new production building. I don't have a red card, so I can't make that offering. And I don't have uh, the green card, I believe, which is what I need for the production. If I have a temple and I discard it, then I can call it green and I can make the green offering. So that's kind of nice. The other thing, though, that the temple cards do is they're what provides you with your endgame victory point bonuses. So you might have a temple card that says you're going to get three victory points for every mountain region you occupy, or you're going to get uh, four victory points for every region where you have at least three buildings or something. So uh, because you are able to build several buildings in a particular region as long as there's no duplicates. So I could build like a university, I could build a trading house, I could build a production building, I could put an army piece, which is kind of considered a building for these purposes, right? So I can put these pieces in one region and perhaps that's really going to help me when it comes to my endgame scoring. However, in order to build a temple, you must have built at least one card of every other color and then you're eligible to build a temple. If you want to build a second temple, you have to have two cards of every color in your tableau before you build that second temple. And temples are one of the timers of the game. There's only so many of them that are available, and once they're all built, the game's going to come to an end. So that's really kind of interesting because that's going to give you sort of a long-term strategy. When you get some of those temple cards early, if you find something that's going to work for you, you're going to try to build your whole strategy around that. And so that's awfully fun, too. So all of that sounds interesting. All of that is kind of fun, but it's kind of a been there, done that thing before. I don't know that it makes it really interesting. What makes this game interesting is the way in which your stacks of like cards activate. And that's the new thing that Deus brings to the table. You know, we've seen resource conversion games. We've seen dudes on a map games. We've seen games where you drive for endgame victory points. All of that has been done before. But what makes this game really interesting is that... Let's say I built a maritime port card that's going to allow me to sell clay and stone, like lots of clay and stone, uh, meaning one of each for three victory points apiece. Okay, let's just say something like that. And then uh, later, uh, I build a maritime port that is going to allow me to sell goods for two coins apiece. And then the next one I build says that I can sell wheat and stone, for two victory points, uh, you know, for each lot. So what what I'm trying to get at is that every time you add a card to a stack, you're going to activate not only that card, but all of the cards that you played previously, starting with the oldest and going to the newest. So in the first example, it's like, okay, uh, I, I don't have any clay, unfortunately, but I have some stone. And so I can't take advantage of that first card, but the second card is going to allow me to buy resources. So I'm going to buy some wheat to go with my stone, and then on that third card that activates in that stack, I'm now going to sell a bunch of my wheat and stone in order to get a bunch of victory points. And so that really worked out for me. And now before I build my next maritime kind of building, and you can build up to five in each column because you have five pieces to put out on the board, before I build my next Maritime card, I'm actually going to do my best to make sure I've got stone and I've got some um, you know, money on hand and I've got maybe some clay you know, so that I can take advantage of that clay stone card, have enough stone left over so that I can buy some wheat if I don't have enough, or maybe I've got the wheat but I don't have the stone, and then be able to uh, uh, execute that second card, which is going to get me even more victory points, and then finally execute the last card that I just played. And so you get this really neat chaining kind of thing going on where every time you add a card to a column you're reactivating that whole column and that can really lead to some fantastic uh, sort of synergies and combo play that elevates this game from the standard kind of collect resources build a building put a dude on a map see who wins kind of thing this really kind of makes it much more interesting so to my mind This is the crucial thing that makes Deus a game that I really enjoy. My wife enjoys, uh, my kids enjoy it. Uh, It's light enough that I can play it uh, with my teenage girls. They, They really have a lot of fun, and yet there's enough meat there for my wife and I to kind of explore some of the different strategies. Okay, so everything here sounds positive. The production value is nice. I happen to like the art. Um, The cards are really well done. The effects are very interesting. The combos are great. The management of your hands and your pieces and the space on the board, trying to time things so you don't get cut off. I mean, all of this is awesome. So there's only one complaint that I have about the game, and that is there have been games that I've had where you really just don't ever seem to draw cards that you need. I mean, for example, if I want to attack a barbarian settlement, uh, like I talked about earlier, you have to encircle the barbarian settlement with pieces, and one of the pieces needs to be a legion. If you have a legion piece and yours is the only one there, you're going like, to just take over that barbarian village. You're going to snag all those victory points, and that can be really important, okay? Okay. The problem is, is I've got the whole dang thing basically encircled. My neighbor is creeping closer and closer, and I'm worried they're going to plop a Legionnaire down there. And uh, despite all my hard work, I'm going to take the points. All I need is a red card. That's all that I need. I need one red card so that I can play it. I've got the Legion piece on my player bat. I'm ready to go. I got the resources. I have everything I need, but I don't have the red card. And so... There are things you can do. You can make an offering to the gods for, like, the, the the university kind of buildings, the education buildings, I call them, right? You can do that and draw, like, nine cards. You could draw a whole bunch of cards, and it's awesome. But if you still don't get the red card, you're stuck. There's nothing you can do. And so this game reminds me a little bit of uh, Bruges by Stefan Feld. Both games really enjoyable. Both games easy to learn, easy to play. Um, but both games can be derailed a little bit by just bad luck, you know, just bad luck with card drawing. So, um, you know, that's something that I think people need to be aware of, all right? If you're going into this game thinking it's going to be this, uh, you know, really thematic civilization experience, it might not be for you. It is a little generic, it is a little urified. If you're going into it thinking you're going to have all this strategic control, You might want to try before you buy. However, if you're looking for a a civilization-themed, a light game that's going to offer you the opportunity for some clever card play, hand management, some fun choices and decisions to make on the board, um, lots of variety in how you're going to try to strive for victory, depending on those um, uh, uh, temple cards that I talked about earlier, the purple cards, this game is a lot of fun and plays very well. I would say with you know two, three, and four players. Once everybody's kind of familiar with the game. Um, I think the sweet spot is probably three for me. I really enjoy this game best with three. Uh, two, I think it's a little too kind of wide open, but it's very pleasant as a couple's game, I gotta tell you. I mean, it, it doesn't feel as tense as the three and four player game, but it, it's a it's a very fun game to play with just your partner sitting at home at night, and you know, you can play it in like 45 minutes. It's not a long game, and so it delivers some fun, kind of interesting decisions decisions with uh, uh, enough randomness to kind of keep things a little spicy, just be aware that that randomness can kind of creep up from time to time in a little bit of an unpleasant way, depending on your tolerance for that kind of a thing. Um, you know, there there are those who would, you know, sort of argue, well, if the cards aren't coming your way for that, then do something else. Do something that's going to be, you know, a different move. It's going to get you points. It's going to be uh, another avenue for success. And that's certainly true. Uh, however, I know because I've experienced it when you kind of set yourself up for something and then you kind of get stymied, it can really sort of Uh, rub you the wrong way a little bit. Uh, Does it rub me the wrong way enough that I am going to, you know, not keep the game? Uh, No, no. It's a fun game and I enjoy it. And I think it's a good game. uh, Clever design. I I just think that people need to have their eyes open when they go into it. And so if all of this, uh, you know, after listening to this, you think that this sounds like that kind of perfect light fun Civ game with a little bit of hand management and spatial kind of considerations on the board a little bit of competition without being cutthroat then I think that Deus is definitely a game you should check out and well worth the time that's Deus by Asmodee Games designed by Sebastian Desjardins So the last game we're going to talk about here today is another title from Day, and this is the game called Abyss. Uh, this was a game that came out at Gen Con when I was there last year and there was quite a lot of buzz about this game Abyss and one of the main reasons I think was for the incredibly striking artwork of this game. Uh, Abyss is at heart a kind of auction game and a sort of set collection kind of a game where players are uh, supposedly kind of like these undersea lords who are trying to attract other allies to come to sort of their side um, uh, through uh, attending the undersea council and then taking over uh, locations that are going to uh, increase their uh, power and dominion in the undersea world. This is a game by Bruno Cathala and uh, Charles Chevalier. Um, you know, it's for two to four players, uh, released in 2014. And the story that I just told you of the theme of the game is really uh, just kind of a, a backdrop, if you will. Um, there isn't really a whole lot of theme in this game, uh, other than the art, which is just phenomenal. Uh, mind-boggling, just truly exceptional. Uh, everything that you've heard is true, okay? It's not just a gimmick with the different, uh, you know, covers of the box. Uh, all of the card art is gorgeous. The uh, main board is beautiful. The cardboard uh, tokens and bits, the uh, locations, these long kind of cardboard tiles, absolutely gorgeous artwork. There's nothing not to like about it. And um, and insofar as you feel like you're looking at this kind of beautiful underwater world, little dark, little mysterious, it totally works, okay? However, it's not really about, you know, undersea dominion. It's about gaining uh, uh, cards, they call them allies, you're going to gain these cards in different suits. Um, The suits are kind of the uh, underwater types of creatures. So you have like crustaceans and jellies and tentacle creatures and whatnot, but basically they're suits, okay? And so you're going to be collecting cards in these suits. That's the set collection kind of part. And then you're going to be spending those cards, okay, in order to attract these undersea lords. And the undersea lords are wanting cards of certain types, so they may want a card, for example, uh, three different types of um, you know kind of uh, suits of cards, uh, one of which has to be crustaceans, you know, crabs. This is a great little piece of the art of the of the crab claw, right? So. You know, if if I can get ten points worth of cards, uh, one of which is a crab, then I'm going to be able to attract that lord to you know my kind of team, my side, right? As I am you know struggling to gain supremacy in the Undersea Council. Okay, so I think you can tell from what I'm describing here that the theme is there for aesthetics. That the theme doesn't really enter the gameplay at all. So, you know, that's something that I think people need to be aware of right out the gate, okay? Uh, And I think that this is the reason why the game received some mixed kind of uh, reviews, you know? There there were people who were really expecting this wonderful kind of thematic experience, you know, this under-the-sea kind of thing. And that didn't happen. And so they were disappointed. Others kind of, I think, knew maybe they'd done a little bit of reading or whatnot before they had played the game or bought the game and looked at it and kind of, you know, knew going into it that this was kind of a set collection game and that you were going to be purchasing cards which would give you special abilities or powers or victory points that would then allow you to, you know, maybe take over locations which are going to give you more victory points. And whoever has the most wins, right? So. The game is incredibly straightforward, all right? On your turn, you are either going to um, recruit a lord by uh, discarding those kind of ally cards we talked about in the different suits, okay? You are going to flip over cards of those little allies from a large deck, okay? And when you do that, when it's your turn, if I choose to do that, they're called exploring the depths, right? The first card, I you know, I flip over, um, I have to offer it to the other players at the table. And if they want that card, they have to pay me. And that leads us to the next thing, which is the currency of the game is pearls. And these pearls are represented by these beautiful little plastic pearls. And everybody also gets, comes with the game, these beautiful little molded plastic cups that look like a clamshell. So. Awesome, awesome components, and just a huge amount of fun and and beautiful to look at and play with, and you know, just kind of swirl the pearls around in your little cup. Uh, drove my wife crazy, but, you know, the rest of us (laughs) really liked it, and so, you know, it's really kind of cool, so if I'm flipping up cards, the first card I flip up is like a three uh, tentacle, right, so it's got this nice octopus picture on it, and I have to offer it first to my wife, and if she wants it, she pays me a pearl, then I have to offer it to my son, if he wants it, he has to pay me a pearl, if neither of them want it, then I can take it for myself, and I'm done, If I decide I don't want it, I can flip up the next card. Oh, this is a one seahorse card. Oh, geez, you know? Uh, And I say to my wife, do you want that? And if she says, oh, yeah, I want that, she'll give me a pearl and she'll take the card. Uh, Maybe because she needed a seahorse card to be one of the cards in the total set that she has to turn in for a lord. So even a little value one card can be important, even though I kind of dismissed it. Oh, geez, I wonder what she's saving for there. Then I flip another card um, and say that is a uh, four jellyfish. And so I'll say to my son, do you want this? If he wants it, because my wife's not eligible now. She's already gotten a card. If my son wants it, he has to give me two pearls, okay? So he can give me two pearls, and then I can uh, give him that card. And then I continue to flip. So this kind of works this way. If there was another player at the table uh, and they wanted one of the cards on my turn, they'd have to pay me three pearls, okay? Uh, At the very end, though, I will get to decide if I want to keep a card. So I can flip a card, and if I like it, if everyone else has passed on it, I can take it. Um, I can keep doing this until I get the to the end of the exploring the depths kind of chart that's on the board. And the last card I flip, I have to take, but my kind of consolation prize is I get a pearl. So that's kind of nifty, too pearls are important not only for buying cards when it's not your turn which can be extremely important uh because then i don't have to waste a turn getting a card i can just claim a lord um It's also important because if you are short some value, let's say that I need three different kinds of cards, one of which has to be a seahorse, and they have to equal eight in order for me to attract that lord. My seahorse is worth three, my jelly is worth one, my crab is worth two. So I'm at three, four, five, six in my value of cards. I have the right number of cards. I don't have a high enough value, and I don't have more cards that I could add to that bid Of those three types, I can throw pearls in to kind of make up the rest of the value that I need. So pearls are valuable in that way as well. So collecting pearls is always a good thing. There's also the opportunity when you explore the depths, you might end up finding a monster, and it shows you like a big moray eel, a nice illustration on the card. And if that happens, then you have a choice. You either evade it, which basically means you discard it and keep flipping up those ally cards, or you can fight the monster. And if you fight the monster... That's going to give you a benefit. And benefits could include things like pearls or include, it could include things like monster tokens that are going to be, give you end-of-the-game victory points. Or it could even give you combinations of those things or give you keys. Now, keys are important because you need three keys in order to unlock, if you want to think of it that way, and claim one of those big location tiles I was talking about. Now, some of the undersea lords that you recruit have keys printed on their cards, and that counts towards the total of three that you need. And, uh, you know, that that can be the primary way in which you're going to gain locations. However, there's also keys that can be gained by fighting the monsters, and those are nice cardboard uh, punch tokens of nice skeleton keys. They look very pretty. So... Once you've accumulated three keys, you don't actually have a choice. You actually now have to claim one of those locations. And the game starts off with one being face-up, and you can just take that one, or you can pick three from this really big stack, decide which one you want, and then put the other two face-up for uh, the other players. Uh, you know, and And in future rounds, they might be able to claim them. So that's a nice little decision point there. Uh, You know do I take the one that's right there in front of me obvious or do I run the risk and I'm going to draw three of them one of which might be awesome for my opponent but not be very good for me and now I've kind of set them up Mm, I don't know what should I do. So that's kind of an interesting decision point. Uh, you can also kind of try to keep track of what other players are collecting in those kind of suits uh, of the ally cards so that you can kind of make an intelligent guess about what you think they're going for and then decide whether you need to try and block that and take it from them first or whether you know, you're know you going to focus on your own thing and kind of go for what people aren't you know, trying to save for. Finally, uh, one last thing about uh, uh, that, that I failed to mention. Uh, on your turn, you can explore the depths with those ally cards and possibly fight a monster. You can claim a lord on your turn, or you can basically uh, claim cards that are in the council. Now, the council is that area when you flip up those cards to explore the depths. If people pass on cards and you don't want it when it's your turn and you're flipping them, they kind of sit there. And at the end of that whole phase, any cards that weren't selected go to the center of the board where they start to form stacks of those ally cards. And so on your turn, you can explore the depths looking for a specific card, or you can just say, you know what? There's four crab cards sitting there, and I know... I've seen a few of them. They're they're really good value. I'm just going to grab those, and she so just grabbed the whole stack, and so that's a lot of currency for you. Now you know you might need also other cards of different currencies. You know uh, that that's certainly something you got to keep in mind. However. Um, you know, it's it's really good to sometimes just make that move and just grab yourself a stack of cards because, you know, th- there might be some high value ones in there that are going to help you reach those totals. Most of these Lord cards, you know, you need 6, seven, eight, 10, 12 points worth of ally cards in order to claim them. So these are kind of the nuts and bolts of the game. And so as you can see, Uh, while the art is evocative, the components are evocative, um... The gameplay is nice and simple. The powers on the cards are all interesting. A lot of these Lord cards will give you some sort of a, a rule-changing or game-break kind of an ability. And that ability remains in effect until that third key is got. And then when you take a location, you actually are covering uh, the abilities of those Lords. And they still count for end game victory points, but they're kind of going to cover that up. And so you might lose that ability. So... It's got a lot of really interesting mechanical things going for it. It it truly does. And it kind of reminds me of some of the Dr. Finn games we've been talking about tonight. You know, uh, Biblios or Scripts and Scribes, whatever you want to call it, isn't really a tremendous thematic experience. It's just a beautiful engine and a game that is just solidly designed and works extremely well. If you go into Abyss... With that mindset, I think you're going to enjoy the game quite a bit because while the theme isn't as strong in this one as you would think based on the cover art and the description of the game, uh, the game itself flows. It is fast playing. It is easy to teach, easy to learn, lots of replay value because you have lots of different Lord cards that are going to come out differently every turn. You have randomness in the locations that are coming out. That's going to give you a lot of differences. And then, of course, you don't know how those ally cards are coming out or what's going to happen with the monster cards. So all of these things lead to a nice variety. So what's the downside to the game? You know, there's always something that I have to kind of share that, you know, maybe I would have liked to, you know, to have been different. Well, number one is I, I personally would have loved a tighter integration of the theme, With the gameplay. I'm a theme guy most of the time, and so I did kind of miss that, but I knew it coming in, so I wasn't bothered by it. You know, I was kind of hoping that what I'd heard was wrong, but it's not. The theme isn't really there all that much, but uh, boy, the gameplay is fun and, and engaging. The only other thing that I would say is this is not a two player game. As with any game where there's any kind of like set collection or auction kind of feel to it, it really just doesn't uh, play as well with Chew. Uh, I played it my first time with Chew uh, with my uh, uh, friend Lloyd, who's been on the show. And uh, we were like, yeah, you know, it's all right. And, and I was really kind of thinking, you know, this game's going to get a very meh review. You know, it's it's uh, you know, the theme's not really there. Sure, the art's great, but the, the gameplay is kind of, eh. you know, eh, whatever. And then I played it with three and I was like, oh, OK. Now there's more pearls flying around, there's more options to use your pearls. There's more interaction, the lords are cycling through faster so you get more opportunities. And I was like, "Oh, okay, you know, this this is better." And then I played it with 4 and I was like, "Oh, I really like this." You know, now it's 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 really kind of kicked up because there's a lot more interaction. There's there's a lot more of, of people kind of buying cards when it's not their turn. And, uh, you know, the, the stacks of cards in the center of the table don't grow as much as they sometimes do in a two- or three-player game. Um, so you don't have someone who just grabs, like, six cards from a stack from that center council area. It, it just really seems to play at its best with three and four. So if you're looking for a game uh, to play with, uh, you know, a partner game you know, again, I think the game shines with three and four, and I don't notice a lot of downtime really ever, so, because everybody is involved in that exploring the depths, and if you're not exploring the depths, and you're just simply taking a stack of cards from the center council, or grabbing a lord card, your turn's over, and like, like, 15 seconds. So there's like no downtime in this game with higher player counts. All that it does is increase the kind of interaction, you know, a little bit, uh, and, and increase the, the kind of variety as things kind of cycle through more quickly. So to me, this game really should never be played except for three and four. So, uh, a little bit of a ding on it for the two player, uh, game experience. I, I don't really enjoy that uh, as much. Um, and you know, the, the theme thing I've already talked. When it comes to the gameplay, though, it's solid, it's smooth, it's easy, No, very little downtime other than maybe reading those Lord cards when they first come out because, you know, a lot of them, as I said, had in-game effects and you kind of have to read through it and see, okay, what, what do these do and do these work for me or whatever, Really interesting, um, and just it's just fun to play uh, if you're going at it as a kind of an auction game like that. So uh, I think this is a game that if you go into it once again, uh, you know, just like I talked about with Deus, if you go into it understanding what the game is trying to do, I think you're really going to enjoy the game. If you go into it with uh, confused expectations, I don't really know that it's it's something you know that that uh, might appeal to you uh, if you. Think you're going to find that kind of thematic connection. So, uh, you know, as, as a game by um, uh, Asmodee, by Bruno Cathala, and Charles uh, Chevalier, I think this is a, a really fun, light kind of family, kind of an auction bidding, hand management set collection game. Plays really quickly and definitely one worth checking out. That's Abyss. Well, that's about all the time we have for this episode of The Long View. Uh, I, of course, want to thank my guest, uh, Steve Oxenic, for coming on uh, Stormseeker 75 and talking to us about Biblios, uh, Scripts and Scribes, uh, Capo di Capi, uh, Institute of Magical Arts, Let Them Eat Shrimp, and so many of the great Dr. Finn games that uh, many of us have come to know and love and enjoy. So uh, thanks to him for being on the show. Be sure to check out his new podcast and the content that Steve's going to be offering for us here in the near future. I also, of course, want to thank my sponsor, Gamesurplus.com. If you're looking uh, to get a hold of any of the great games that we've talked about tonight, uh, please feel free and go and check them out at www.gamesurplus.com. If you do order from them, please be sure to tell them that the long view sent you, and they'll send you a free little spin to win uh, with your order, which is a fantastic way to choose your start player and just a a, a nice little fun thing to have free of charge added in to your order from Gamesurplus.com. So if you're looking for great customer service, if you're looking for a difficult-to-find game, perhaps an import, uh, and they don't have it in stock, feel free to send Velma and her family an email at games at gamesurplus.com and uh, let them know what you're looking for, and they'll be sure to track it down. I also, of course, want to thank uh, the Dice Tower. The Longview is a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Go and check out all the great things that they have to offer there and the sister podcasts in the Dice Tower Network like Flip the Table and Ludology. Uh, of course, want to send a shout-out to my local game store, The Gamer's Edge in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. If you're in the Northeast PA region, feel free to stop on by. Uh, they're right conveniently located off of Interstate 80 on Main Street in Stroudsburg, Pennsylvania. Lots of open tables and uh, gaming space, uh, a friendly and knowledgeable staff, and a great selection of board games. Go check out what The Gamer's Edge has to offer. Thanks to all of you out there for listening, and have a great night.